So you guys would hear all the, like, the cool Winds of Winter rumors that are like swirling around? <laughs> are you talking about the ones we invented? <laughs> the ones we invented. <laughs> is that the one or is there are there real updates? Did you actually invent a rumor? I don't know. I just was trying to tweet something Probably. about you being on the podcast. And I thought, what will annoy Jeff the most? And I was like, we're going to ask him when he thinks the Winds of Winter will be released. 2019. <laughs> I think that's the year. I honestly do. So that's a real answer? That's a, I, it's as real of an answer as I have right now. I mean, like, I think... Uh, so I don't know if you guys had had seen, but um, at WorldCon there was a apparently a Chinese couple that came up and talked with George R. R. Martin. They're like, "Oh, George, we would love for you to visit China." He's like, "Oh yeah, I'll be there next year." And we're like, "Wait a minute, we didn't know that George was going to go to China next year. That sounds a little <laughs> odd, right?" And then I, I <laughs> right exactly, and it wasn't on his on his appearance page either. So he's got this great website called georgeRMartin.com, and uh, he's. Love it. Yeah, right. Exactly. Pretty, you know. Shout out jordarmartin.com. <laughs> right, I love exactly. that site. We're just going to like blow his stats up for like oh, one, yeah. for a few <laughs> yeah, days we, after this episode comes we out. We are. <laughs> <laughs> hmm, interesting website. Never heard of it before. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so it, it wasn't on his appearance page. And um, then I had heard rumors a while back that like he was going to go to Worldcon, which is going to be in Dublin, Ireland mm-hmm. in 2019, and then had come around and been like, oh, uh, and, and then I heard the rumor that he was going to go to a second convention that also wasn't on his appearance page, and he was calling it a quote-unquote vacation. And the only way he would take a vacation is if, drumroll? Yeah. Yeah. Maybe the once a winter would be done. Well, and know. wasn't there this idea that he wasn't going to go to a lot of conventions until after Winds of Winter? And if yeah. he's going to ramp up his convention appearance, then yeah, he was that only going to go to the that. Yeah, you're, you're right because he was only going to go to the ones that he was had scheduled Already. years years in advance, like Balticon. Like that was one that he had put on the calendar, like in 2013. Right. And uh, yeah, and now he's added on this convention as well. You, he always says Worldcon every single year, but he's apparently going to China. It's not confirmed yet, but a, a apparently going to China allegedly, and uh, allegedly also going to a convention called Eurocon, which is you know not that far distance because I think Eurocon is in Belfast, whereas Worldcon is in Dublin. Mm-hmm. And it's pretty close together in terms of like um, distance and time. I think they're both in August 2019. How did you hear about what this couple overheard? How did it? It got posted on. Um, there's a Chinese Chinese social media site called Weibo. I think I want to call it that. Maybe I'm totally wrong mm-hmm. about that, but yeah, is that what it's called? Mm-hmm. I'm not sure. I'm pretty sure. So uh, and then it got passed around to me, and I heard about it, and uh, yeah, I, I hear I hear things, man. What was your first thought when you heard this? Was it, aha? I was just kind of like, okay. I mean, <laughs> as you, I don't know if you could tell me. I'm, I, I feel like I get my hopes up every like year. Every That's fall. Like, <laughs> I feel like every fall time is when we all kind of start to think. We were just right? talking about how many years it's been right before we pressed the record button. Yeah. Th- there have been seasons. There have been children. Yeah. I mean, Still I, in the book. You know, I, I had, had a, a friend um, back in – 2000 last year over a year ago now actually yeah last summer who was like ah well i my i have a friend in the publishing world who says that they're expecting the winds of winter by december 2017 i was like oh (laughs) i'm so excited about this and he's like you can't say anything i'm like okay that's fine i won't say anything (laughs) this is amazing (laughs) right (laughs) and then does he follow your twitter is he aware of your twitter he's aware yeah he's aware your passion in life something that you love okay 
So it was like, I was like, oh, I'm very excited about this. And then, you know, you guys remember last Valerio that, that not a blog post was like, I blew up all over yes. the world. Yeah. Yes. And I was like, oh my gosh, I'm like starting to put like two and two together. Like, ah, last Valeria, my friend is saying the winds. I still coming dream December. about that day. Yeah, oh, yeah, that was a great day. Wasn't <laughs> it was a good day. It? <laughs> yeah, everyone was super excited for like you know twenty four hours or something like that. So, so of course the Winds of Winter came out in two thousand seventeen, December two thousand seventeen, which was great. I mean, I think we've all enjoyed reading and rereading that book over and over again now, and it's kind of gotten a little old. We have to ask where where Dream Spring is at this point. I think <sighs> that's not right? true. None of that's true. Oh right, it didn't come out in December two thousand seventeen. <laughs> Yeah, so my my feeling is like, oh, okay, you know, at this point, I'm I'm not going to get excited about things until like we the get book some is in your hands. Uh, you're almost. excited about that information about his sure. vacation. Sure, I mean, who who wouldn't be excited about vacation, right? Don't what if you guys it's the most think, interesting thing? I was say it's the most interesting thing that we've heard. I feel like in quite some time, in terms of. Like, you know, I mean, it's like we're saying, there's always been little hints, quote unquote hints, not really hints, but it's been a while since we've had any excitement around what could possibly be a release date. Yeah. So. That's true. I had someone ask me today in an email, in a work email, if I knew when the next book was coming out. <laughs> What'd you say? <laughs> I said, like, yeah. sadly, that is still a mystery. <laughs> or a raise, I might know. <laughs> it's like, nope, don't know that. <laughs> <laughs> It's, it's, it's fun. I mean, I think it's like, I, I don't know. I mean, it's as much as, as annoying as it is, it's also kind of fun at the same time, too. For sure. You know, you get excited. It's almost like Christmas for fans of Song of Ice and Fire and Game of Thrones. Like, oh, the winds of winter is right around the corner, right? Right? Yes, we're all very excited. Let's put everything together and get disappointed all over again. It's, it's you know. We should just start telling people we know when it is, even if we don't. So it sounds <laughs> sure. like we know and nobody else does. <laughs> That's a terrible idea. Yeah, it's kind of funny. I'm going to do that in my real life. <laughs> I do have, actually, I do have some legit information, but I, I have to cut it out of this podcast where I can tell you guys afterwards. If, if you're not about the winds of winter, though. No, you can just tell us now. We'll just cut it out. Just tell okay. us. We'll, yeah, we'll just bleep it all out. We'll just put a bleep yeah. sound. Just a bunch of bleep sounds. Yeah. So a uh, a friend of mine, not a different friend. So you, you can't put that on the podcast, but I, I figured I would tell you guys since you're my friends. And do you uh, just want the reaction to be edited in? Uh, yeah, I guess you can. You can edit the, yeah, edit the reaction in because I mean I think it's it's legit, right? I mean, that's genuinely very exciting. We could talk about that for a long time, like that on its own specifically for yeah. a long time. You guys should like. do a special episode. Yeah, we should. We would. We would love. Like I was, I was telling Zach. Um, I think it's probably about three or four weeks ago because I'm so fucking bad on, on text messages, man. I'm, I'm so sorry about that. Same. Like, I'll look, I'll look down and be like, Same. oh, Zach texted me like eight days ago. I'm like, It's cool. Fuck. I'm like just crying, sad, alone. <laughs> right, I'm yeah, like, like, please reply to me. But but yeah, no, I, was, I was talking about having you guys on for a, uh, not a cast up. So I know you guys are, are several years beyond a Game of Thrones and we're like midway through the first book. And, uh, you know, one of the things that we had, I don't know if you guys got to listen at all, but the first episode we did talk about how you guys were an inspiration for us for sure. And we've always yeah. in, enjoyed you guys so much and, and been happy to call ourselves fans of yours for a longer time than we were podcasting. And so it's just a, a real pleasure to come in and, and guest with you guys and uh, have some inspiration at our sales as we, uh, from you all, of course, as we're uh, progressing through our own little podcast series as we're going through the first book now and uh, doing a few special episodes along the way too. But yeah, we, like I was saying to Zach, we would love to have you guys on for an episode or a chapter. If you have a favorite or one that you really want to cover, we would love to have you either of you or both of you at the same time on whatever you guys are your preferences we would love to have you that's so sweet you guys are doing great work 
Thanks. I appreciate that. I love both of you guys so much. It's such an amazing thing. Yeah, you was, guys are doing the podcast, you know? Yeah, I was, I was talking with uh, with uh, Emmett last, because we were, we were recorded last night. We always have a little time to like kind of like a little icebreaker. We talk about things that are going on in our lives and things like that. And he's like, oh, yeah. And I asked him how DragonCon was. And he was like, yeah, you know, I, I got to hang out with Zach. And like, you're like... And I guess you can cut this out or, or leave it. It doesn't, it doesn't really matter for it. Um, but he was, he was saying, he was like, yeah, I, uh, you know, some people you're like, you're just not sure if like they're actually genuine and authentic or not. But like Zach is like totally like who he is, like a hundred percent. Like he's not like, there's not like a false or ingenuine part about him or inauthentic part about him. So it's like, yeah, that's actually pretty true. You know, Zach is exactly the same as on the podcast as he is in real life and, on, on phone calls. I mean, if you remember, we had long conversations about John Connington like three years ago now and stuff like yeah. that. So, yeah. <laughs> that yeah. was really sweet, man. Thank you. Yeah. Well, thank Emmett. He was the one who was like, oh, <laughs> I, I love both of you guys. I Talking to both of you about Song of Ice and Fire uh, and including you on the show, both of you guys on the show with Hannah and I has been some of my, some, some of my favorite moments associated with doing this whole project. Yeah, uh, thank from you. The, from sure. the very beginning. And I know that Hannah and I, like, every time we press the stop button at the end of an episode with you, we just go into, like, cartwheels of high fives and victorious text <laughs> messages to each other. Like, oh, that was so fun. We did a good thing. And well, we were able to, we're always able to walk away from those discussions feeling really confident about how much time that we put into the podcast and stuff. And when we first found out that you guys were making not a cast, we were just like, this is everything. This is oh, everything. Thank you. <laughs> thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah, it's, it's it's a lot of fun to do it. And, you know, of course, you know, listen to you guys. You guys are way far advanced and feast and dance now. It's fun to like, I, I can listen to you guys without being like, okay, well, I don't want to. There's a couple of podcasts that I, I skip their episodes if they're like in like a Game of Thrones because I don't want to crip mm -hmm. their style too much or crip their notes. Yeah. Um, necessarily. Like it's that kind of, even if I'm not, it's not intentional, you don't want to like plagiarize them or anything like that. But you guys are so far ahead now that I can listen to you guys and be like, okay, you know, four or five <laughs> years down the road, whenever we get to feast and dance, it's going to be a, it'll be fresh and all, fresh on my mind when I get, get around to it. But yeah, it was, it was a lot of fun actually getting back into, into Feast for Crows because this is like the first time I had read Feast in two years, maybe these two chapters, especially like it was, mm -hmm. it was great. I was glad we were able to steal you before you guys covered it on your own podcast because this oh, man. is the Blackfish chapter, you know, yes. Yes. this is the moment, this Jamie six and we can't not mention Brienne seven as well. We're talking about both of these chapters today. You want to know a, a dirty secret? Uh, yes, please. Out always. Can, do we have to bleep this one out? Or can no, we you leave don't this have, one you don't have to bleep that one out. <laughs> I like the Brienne chapter better. <gasps> drama i don't even know if they need to be ranked is that fair but i mean like the brienne chapter is like one of my top five in all of a song of ice and fire i think is it's it really? top 10 oh yeah it's fantastic no chance and no choice it's phenomenal like the end of the chapter is some of the some of george's best work and it's oh, really yeah. beautiful stuff like when brienne steps out into the rain with Oathkeeper in hand and you know she thinks to herself that she doesn't have any she it's seven against no one. No chance against she, seven. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no chance and no choice. But she no has to step no out choice. there because she is the true knight. She's the true knight. And that's uh, it's great. Uh, it's, it's a fantastic chapter. One it's a favorites. really, really good chapter. It's a great chapter. I'm just surprised that you would pick any chapter over this next Jamie one. But The Jamie one's really good. Yeah, I mean, I, I just, I don't know. I think... Um, I, in this read, I like the Brienne chapter better than the Jamie chapter. It's it's nice that they're paired right back to back, right? 
And it's nice too that Brienne has all these like really tender thoughts about Jamie about crying on the shoulder and stuff like that at the end of this Brienne chapter. It's it's interesting, right? Mm-hmm. Interesting. Are you guys do you guys ship Jamie and Brienne? Is that what you guys are, are into? <laughs> is that your is that your kink, so to speak? Yes. Uh, <laughs> finally a real question on the podcast. <laughs> I don't care. The answer is yes. I'm for it. Yeah, I'm for it. Yeah. Just the yeah, the way yeah, I'm for it. It's the bath time did it for me. Bath time and uh I, I, <laughs> I don't know, know what I'm saying. No, I mean I think you're right. I mean like it's it's a very um tender moment, even erotic even at some points, like in with Jamie Brienne in the bathtub. And you know, I love the it's not in this chapter, it's I think it's one of early one of Brienne's earlier chapters, but she talks about she stops imagining that it's Renly that she's falling in love with, that it's actually Jamie. She mm-hmm. starts picturing Jamie as opposed to Renly. And it's it's good stuff, right? So this it's is evidence stuff. for you. Your ship has sailed. I, I am a, I, I'm a big fan of Jamie and Brienne. I don't know how it's going to work out, but I mean, as we find out in Dance, you know, in Jamie's one chapter in Dance, Brienne makes an appearance back in Jamie's chapters. And what does Jamie do as soon as Brienne makes an appearance? Fucks off with her, about off to save Sansa Stark. <laughs> like he, he, he doesn't like try and like stick around to to go back to Cersei Lannister, his sister and his lover, former lover at this point, I guess. But he he heads off with Jamie, follows her, or rather, he follows Brienne and follows her on on off to uh, try and save quote unquote Sansa Stark. But we all know she's going to hang out with that. He's going to meet up with Lady Stoneheart, which is going to be really good in the Winds of Winter. That's going to be great. I think yes. that I think that even if Jamie and Brienne don't magically fall in love with each other and like. Right off into the sunset. I like because they make each other a better person, better people. Yeah. So I feel like I'm here for it, even if I'm here for like all of the classic shipping things that I'm Mm -hmm. always going to be into, but they just make each other better people. They do. So it's a win win situation. Yeah, absolutely. Zach? Sorry. (laughs) Your thoughts? (laughs) Yeah. I I don't want to dominate the conversation. So I, I, I guess I wanted to ask you about how do you think these two chapters? connect to one another specifically i know that we spent a lot of time thinking about how chapters would pair not only for the podcast but just through the feature of reading and the combined reading order and how Uh a lot of those transitions would begin to compound and build a larger theme this was an original placement from george r R. martin in feast for crows and so we've got the master's hand at work here Oh, yeah. What do you guys think is the the biggest takeaway from the two being laid beside each other? Like you said, the, the tender moments that Brienne has, I feel like we can also see the same sort of glimmers, but from another direction with Jamie. And he's obviously dealing with a whole other hell of his own making in his chapter. Like, what are the, the things that connect the two? I'll let Hannah go first. All I can really think about when I'm reading these two chapters is just the cliche A Feast for Crows overall oh, yeah. themes when it comes to you know, the realities of the fallout of war and kind of the fallout for all of these folks um, with everything that's been going on in the last couple of books. And so I feel like those are pretty major overarching, maybe obvious themes. And then another thing that I kind of thought a lot about too is Jamie in this chapter is dealing, and more so Jamie than Brienne, but Jamie in this chapter is dealing a lot with who he is as a person in a lot of different regards. And I feel like that we get in this Brienne chapter a couple moments that really as well kind of show her true colors and like deep down to her core who she really is. And so this is also kind of a broader theme in A Feast for Crows, but these ideas of identity and identity 
reality versus cliches also, um, I think kind of come into play when we look at what it means to be a knight or what it means to be in the King's guard or what it means to be at siege or at war, you know, all those kinds of cliches aren't always played out in the way that somebody like Sansa would have grown up reading about them. And so, um, again, I think those are broader themes in the story, but to have these two characters back to back to me, just kind of, I don't know, highlights that. I, I love the, um, the fact that this chapter in Brienne's chapter, the sword Oathkeeper takes a prominent role, obviously, as we've talked about in a little bit a few minutes ago. And we have to remember that Oathkeeper was a blade that was given to her by Jamie Lannister at the end of A Storm of Swords in Jamie's ninth chapter. And that has remained a constant companion of Brienne through her, through her search for Sansa Stark, through all the different places, Maidenpool, on up with Nibbledick Crab, and then on over to the Riverlands as well. And in this chapter, when she draws Oathkeeper, I think there's a thematic tie between her drawing Oathkeeper to save and protect children to Jamie being extraordinarily frustrated in his next chapter because he has sworn an oath to Catelyn Stark at the end of A Clash of Kings. So now we're in the book timeline, we're talking about a year to a year and a half before the events at the Siege of River Run, where Jamie swears an oath to Catelyn that he will protect Catelyn's daughters and safeguard them. And now he's being brought up short because that oath is essentially saying that he will also not take up arms against the Starks or Stark retainers. And Jamie is doing his damnedest to try mm-hmm. and not fight in River Run, but <laughs> guy. the Blackfish doesn't trust him, and he has good reason not to trust him. I mean, the, Jamie Lannister is as much as he's changed from the character he was when we first meet him at the start of a Game of Thrones. He's still operating with this idea that the that House Lannister has committed an excess of crimes and betrayals against the people that he's attempting to to negotiate with. You know, Brendan Blackfish Tully, as awesome as he is, he's also a bit of a tragic figure too. He's lost his brother. His brother died from probably stomach probably stomach cancer. His his uh, his niece is been was murdered at the Red Wedding. Catelyn Stark was murdered. His his king, Rob Stark, was also murdered at the Red Wedding. All of this was Lannister work, and all of this was, you know, Jamie didn't necessarily order the Red Wedding, and he didn't participate in it, and he didn't plan it at all, but he's still operating under the auspices of the Red Wedding and the success that it provided for House Lannister. So Brendan Tully has no reason to trust Jamie and every reason to say, fuck you. Like, I'm not going mm-hmm. to like negotiate with you whatsoever because you're entirely untrustworthy because of the actions that your family has committed here. So Jamie is in conflict. He has his oaths in conflict. You know, he has that great line in the Clash of Kings, vows and vows. They make you swear and swear, protect the family, protect your, protect the king, serve your family, serve the realm, but, you know, kill your father, you know, protect your family, love your father. You know, they, it's so many oaths. That's kind of like Jamie's point in his arc is that he's been, he has oaths in conflict with themselves. And one of these, these oaths are in conflict with itself here, or he's sworn to bring River Run to heal by under King's Landing, but he also has to face the fact that he swore an oath to Catelyn Stark, saying he would take up no arms against the Starks or Tullys. So, Yeesh. yeah, it's it's hard. It's it's extreme. It's extraordinarily hard. It's it, not just a slog. Like he's bitter about that. Like it was he he says it at some point. It's like just another oath break, broken, another shit in the pail is what he says. Like he can uh. just feel the bitterness in his in his actions and in his thoughts in this chapter. But you know, to be fair to Jamie. 
he hasn't taken up arms against the Starks or Tullys yet. He has not stormed River Run yet. I guess we, you guys are going to find out in the next chapter what happens to Jamie and, and all that stuff. But yeah, it's it, it, so I think that's like the thematic tie for me is the is, is the oaths that that are there and the connection between Jamie and Brienne that's existed for at least you know since, since the Storm of Swords on on now into a Feast for Crows and of course on into a Dance of Dragons too. That is the realest Jamie has been in this book so far in these books when he said he would need to storm the castle. Well, that's one more broken vow to the king. What's one more? Broken vow to the Kingslayer, just more shit in the bucket. Right. Mm-hmm. It's, wow. it's hard, man. It's, it's so wow. hard on, on Jamie. I mean, I, I love Jamie Lannister as a character. I would say he's my favorite point of view character and among all of the point of view characters in all of A Song of Ice and Fire. But at the same time, you do have to <laughs> you have to get this character in conflict. And George does a great work of weaving in his internal conflict over his oaths to the external conflict that he's facing with the Blackfish and having this order to take River Run. And to take River Run means he has to break an oath that he had made to someone that, you know, as much as he probably didn't like her, he she did free him. Catelyn Stark did free Jamie Lannister mm-hmm. back in the end of A Clash of Kings. So it's hard, man. It's it's so hard. Like this is like an impossible situation, right? For mm-hmm. And this is what George loves to do in his books. He puts these characters in impossible situations. And maybe this is another thematic tie between the two. Brienne is put into a, an impossible situation in her chapter where she's seven against one. She has no chance and no choice. And But she stands out and she goes up with, with, Oak, with Oathkeeper in hand and she defends the weak and the innocent and the children from these awful, horrible, fucked up individuals that, you know, get the business end of a sword by the end of the chapter. So, yeah, hard decisions, hard choices. And that's what makes these chapters in Peace for Crows among my favorites in the books and Brienne's chapters specifically among my favorites in all of Song of Ice and Fire. Mm-hmm. Hard choices in the face of failure in some way or another for both yeah. of them. Not that extreme consequences. Yeah, consequences is a better way to say failure because getting your face bitten off is not a failure on yeah. anyone's oh part. But just more shit in the uh, bucket. Yeah, right. Well, with the true knight, Brienne lives a different life. You know, and she faces different circumstances based off of her actions and the way that she navigates the world. Like in Jamie's chapter where he's come to a head with a lot of these decisions and he's, you know, cleaning out his his portion of a feast for crows. He's, I guess, part of those figurative carrion crows across the face of Westeros. And so would Brienne, but in a different way, right? In a more promising way where she's cleaning out these members of the Brave Companions. Her moment of darkness is so much more dark. This chapter with Brienne has got to be one of the more intense I don't know how to describe it. Just mm-hmm. sequences of of um, of fear and violence, and of also just disdain for the the level of shithead that's carrying this out. The moment where George reveals that it's Biter and it's not Sandor Clegane. Yes, get out of here. Oh yeah. And I f- I feel like the build up through this entire chapter until we get to the climax at the end also just has this really great aura of uncertainty and eeriness and on edge as we start off the chapter with the corpses with the salt in their mouths and Mm. we Ah. get to this we get to what they call the old inn at the beginning and kind of the history of this place that we've been before but we haven't yet quite understood kind of its history and where it's come from and the lore behind it mixed into Gendry showing up and Brienne wondering if this person is Arya and there's kids running around and it's so 
just the the ambiance and buildup of kind of the confusion and the fact that you know something is off about this place, but you just you can't really quite put your finger on it until we get to um get to the end. I felt like the buildup of that was um some of my favorite yeah. because we don't always not that there's payoff at the end of this chapter because it's definitely a cliffhanger big time, but I feel like it's not often that we um see some of the climax of what's been going on so quickly. You know what I mean? Like it just felt like a little micro Mm -hmm. mini story in that sense. So I really enjoyed it. Did you guys see Arya in this chapter? Because she is in this chapter. What? Here's the quote. Ready? The carrion crows had been at work on his face and the wolves, this is important, and the wolves had feasted on his lower legs where they dangled near the ground. Now, if you guys flip over some of the Arya chapters from Feast and Dance, what we see in Arya's chapters is that she is still working through Nymeria. And where is Nymeria? But none none other than the Riverlands. Mm -hmm. So I would say that's likely to be Nymeria's wolf pack. And you get, I think in a previous Jamie chapter, you hear, um, what's his face? Not Davin Lannister, the the cool Lannister dude. Regardless, this, this guy says that um, that there's been a giant wolf pack with a huge she-wolf at its head. And that is mm-hmm. no doubt Nymeria right there. So I think Arya has been around this part of the Riverlands here. And this idea of like the crows feasting on the, these people's faces that are dead while the wolves eat their lower bodies. I think that's, I mean, it's it's very emblematic for a feast for crows because I mean, mm-hmm. obviously the crows are feasting on, on the dead here, but the wolves are also at work as well. And the wolves are... Um, being led by Nymeria, who is at times being warged by Arya Stark. And I, I think there's a chapter, maybe it's in dance, I, I can't remember off the top of my head, where Arya is warging through Nymeria and she the the chapter opens with with her attacking like a farmer or something like that through the guise of Nymeria. And it's a really like spooky, spooky chapter that you don't pick up on necessarily at first, but you when you realize that this is actually happening, that's not that Arya's wolf dreams are things that are actually occurring. They're not just delusions or dreams that don't mean anything it does take on a bit of of meaning here so yeah Arya's here i mean even brienne thinks that Arya's at the inn where, where she's not but Arya's around and at some level it's I, I think right i definitely had Arya brought to the forefront of my mind when willow was being compared to Arya, or at least the she was questioning whether or not willow could in fact be Arya, and then of course more shipping fancy who potential of Arya and Gendry, what of what a different future it could have been if they would have split off in a different way and maybe they would have found this inn on their own and maybe these kids oh, yeah. would have been friends with them too. Yeah. I mean, in the show, you have Arya and Brienne interacting in season four mm-hmm. with uh, Lysander Clegane, which doesn't happen in the books, but it's still a cool scene all the same. Um, I, I have to imagine perhaps at some point Brienne and Arya will interact and we do see them interacting in season seven of Game of Thrones when they're up in Winterfell and they're doing that right. really cool sparring thing that, that they have going on up there, which apparently took weeks of of, of work that they were doing in, toward, in order to, to learn how to do the uh, the actors themselves, learning how to do the, all the moves and stuff like that. But yeah, I, I would love to see in the books as well. I think that's a strong possibility that we will – that Arya will be, re, will be united with Brienne at some point. So you believe it being brought up in this way is – is indicative of a of a future situation potentially involving Gendry as well. Sure, you know, Hannah was there at Balticon back in 2016, where George 
told people that, and I don't know if you were, I don't think I actually heard this firsthand. I heard it secondhand that George had told people at this big dinner that he was at that Arya and Gendry will intersect at some point in the Winds of Winter or in A Dream of Spring. So they will be interacting at some point down the road. And I'm looking, definitely looking forward to that for sure, because we haven't seen them interact since Storm of Swords, I think. Yeah, that's a sweet reunion. It was a sweet reunion with Gendry in general in this chapter. He was a perfect figure of question, another angle to look at Brienne and Podrick through a lens, you know, like another person to say, that's Lannister Steel. I'm not sure if I should trust you. And what a handful of subversion when we're toward the end of the chapter and Gendry standing beside Brienne with the hammer. And for a moment, George R. R. Martin could be potentially saying that members of the Brotherhood Without Banners have arrived. That feels oh, yeah. familiar sound of mail clinking and armor shuffling and, and the horses just casually going into town like those bad guys would. But yeah. instead, it, imagine it's our friends and Gendry's like, oh yeah, they're just coming here and it's going to be an interesting conversation. But you've not been so bad to me. Maybe this won't be so bad. And so we're not too worried, but we still don't know what is actually about to happen. But Gendry in that moment is a guy that could be standing and slightly giving a threatening posture to Brienne <laughs> if his friends are there. You know, he could be not a good guy against someone that we really like. And that would have only been because his friends showed up and he's been questioning her the same way since the very beginning. So all of these weird situations put our characters in these moments where it's like, well, maybe we, we wouldn't be cheering for Gendry so much if he didn't handle the situation with Brienne very well. But instead, the bad guy showed up. So we don't have to explore that, I guess. Yeah, I mean... But something to think about. Gendry thinks that these these folks are our allies of the brother the, the brother without banners, and it's only Brienne who's like, hey, who's actually alert because she has to be alert, and that's something that she's learned tragically in her arc is that she can't trust anyone. And you know, she has that line in, in Brienne four where it's, I, I I don't remember how to trust anyone anymore, which is a really kind of sad line after uh, Nimble Dick Crab is, is brutally murdered by by some of the same bloody mummers, not the same ones in, in person here at the, at the end of the crossroads, but some of the same party who um, kill this, kill Nimble Dick Crab and then uh, are, are there at the end of the crossroads there and trying to, it's, it's, it seems like they're, they're on the run from the, from the brotherhood without banners to begin with, um, which is good, I guess, because the brotherhood chasing down the bloody mummers seems like a good deed that they're doing. Though at the same time, you know, you can see the the handiwork of the Brotherhood Without Banners in what's going, what Brienne is seeing on on the road to the end of the crossroads. Just All the people dozens hanging. of guys hanging right. in the forest. Yeah, it's like every fifty meters. I think they talk about that they see mm-hmm. another body swinging from a tree, and that's that Stoneheart's work right there. And you know, it's also something that's um, very Do you different. Know the about- significance of the salt was that. To signify salt pans, or was it something? I think it, yeah, I think it signifies think salt so. pans. Like you know, they yeah. were involved in the sack of salt pans. Yeah, right. That would make sense. I mean, it, it makes sense, but you know, at the same time, and I, I think you guys will get into this in the next Brienne chapter. There's a bit of difference in the Brotherhood Without Banners from the the version that we saw in A Storm of Swords. And I, do you, are you guys going that far into? Are you guys kind of doing spoilers all sort of thing? Or go for it. Yeah, you can okay. go into it. Yeah. Well, so I mean, you guys remember in, in Storm how Arya witnesses the Brotherhood hanging bloody mummers again. These same individuals and this, the people from the same party there, but they also give them trials and they're to varying degrees of fairness. But all the people are guilty when not they hang like them. this, not like this. And you know, in the next chapter, when in Brienne eight, her final chapter in A Feast for Crows and 
her final published chapter for that matter, you know, the Brotherhood of Banners, led by Stoneheart, orders Brienne, Podrick, and Sir Hyle Hunt to be hanged because they're Lannister people. I mean, why, why are they being why are they being hanged? And I think that's speaking to a different character that's inherent in the Brotherhood of the Banners than the one we've we're used to. I mean, these are the guys that came out of existence from the War of the Five Kings, and they didn't take a side, either Stark, neither Stark nor Lannister. And now they're the folks that are hanging people left and right to include innocents. Like what did what did Podrick what was Podrick Payne's crime for being hanged? Having the name Payne? That that's it, really. I mean, he hasn't done any crimes, he hasn't committed any evil deeds. Brienne, for that matter, is the same way that she hasn't done any evil deeds or evil crimes or anything like that. She's trying to search for Lady Stoneheart's daughter, or what was formerly her daughter. I mean, Stoneheart is a different character than than Catelyn, as uh, as George has said a few times in the years since the publication of Storm of Swords. But in Lady Stoneheart's anger, as carried out by her and the Brotherhood Without Banners, the same sort of of, of gap of understanding that Jamie experiences with people like Brendan Tully yeah. for different reasons, pride versus just extreme hate that this creature, she must feel after going through what she went through and seeing Rob murdered like he was being brought back in the way that she has been in a way that we don't quite understand. Yeah. There's no room for questions. It doesn't matter what the evidence was or what the context was or how you may feel about someone. She's just simply carrying out how she reckons it ought to go right. without, you know, kill first, ask never. Yeah. I mean, Thorosa Mir in the next chapter has that line, justice. Ah, I remember that word. That had a sweet ring to it. And what the Brotherhood Without Banners is doing now is not necessarily justice. What they're performing is essentially a vengeance mission on the behalf of Stoneheart, on the behalf of Catelyn, who is fixated on the harms done to her. And her anger and fury against the perpetrators of the Red Wedding is 100% entirely justified. But the outcome of that anger, of that vengeance, is hanging innocents like Podrick Payne. And, and you also hang bad people too, like a number of these guys who have salt in their, their mouths in this chapter. They're obviously bad dudes. I mean, the sack of salt pans was horrific from the reports that Brienne hears on the road up to Badenpool. Sure. And you can understand why they'd be hanged. You don't understand necessarily why Podrick Payne or Brienne or even Sir Hyle Hunt, who's kind of a piece of shit, but he's not necessarily like. But he's just a rando. Yeah, he's 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 just a random dude. Like he's just average. He's a hundred percent average. Like he's just the most average person you can imagine. But he's he hasn't lifted a blade against a peasant. He hasn't done necessarily anything worth being hanged for besides accompanying Podrick Payne and Brienne of Tarth on up to try and find Sansa Stark, which is the mission that that Jamie charged Brienne with and you would seem and seemingly based would off be, of his oath with Catelyn in the first right. place. Exactly. Exactly. So it's you know, it's it's so <laughs> convoluted and <laughs> fucked up the way the things have unfolded. But it's it's great, right? It's great narratively, but at the same time, like you feel that kind of gut punch when, you know, a character like Brienne is you know, encountering these folks. And, you know, Brienne in this chapter, she she defends the weak and the innocent and the helpless, those who can't defend themselves. And she's hanged as a result of it. That's that's what that's what her no chance, no choice earns her. Not ultimately, because you know, she survives, but it earns her a near-death experience at the hands of Stoneheart and the hands sure. of a Brother Without Banners. A Stoneheart and a Brother Without Banners that are radically different from the people that we encountered back in the Storm of Swords. And also earned her a near-death scrape here oh yeah man and she put her friends in harm's way as well people that care about her that she shares the road with 
Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. For love. For love or for honor? For Jamie or for the children? What do you think, guys? I don't think Brand is doing any of this for honor, but... No. You know who is? Blackfish. (laughs) But honor's a horse. (laughs) But that's... We'll get there. (laughs) Honor is a horse. That's one of my favorite little jokes. We'll talk about that. We haven't talked about Septon Marimbald yet. Oh, yeah. You know what? Yeah, there's so much great stuff about Marimbald. For the love of God. Right. Thank God dog is there to find other bodies that are hidden in the tall grass. Right. It's valuable to have a four-legged friend, friends. Yeah, I got my dog in the background here. I don't know if you guys you guys can't see him because we don't have the video on, but he's you can hear him. But on the same note of Maribald, I know we're kind of jumping around a lot. Did you guys catch the story that Maribald tells about the inn? I'm trying to find it real quick in my, my book. The story about the mm-hmm. dragon. The dragon inn, yes. The clinking yeah, I dragon. I wanted to ask you guys about that. It's a very interesting it's deadly, story. Deadly dangerous keeping an inn. Ooh. Yes. Shall we? Uh, I'll just read the story. Yeah, go for it. Here it is. When the smith's son was an old man, a bastard son of the fourth Aegon rose up in rebellion against his true-born brother and took for his sigil a black dragon. These lands belonged to Lord Derry then. Oh, sorry. This was uh, the story of what happened with the dragon. I thought yes. that was more important. That's the important part. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's the important yeah. part. Yeah. I don't have anything highlighted for, he kind of described it over a long stretch of time. So I guess to sum it up, there was this inn and it was a pretty cool inn. As you guys know, when you're reading The Song mm-hmm. of Ice and Fire, you can picture what that inn might look like. Well, this inn was potentially better than all of those others. And for some reason, it seemed to have this fate attached to it because it was handed from person to person and went from cool name to cool name. <laughs> and eventually someone put this badass dragon with yes. three heads on top of it. And it was black and it had moving parts and it would articulate in the wind. Mm-hmm. And this is from a while ago. You know what I'm saying? This isn't the this most isn't the modern de- yeah, decorations. <laughs> it sounds cool, though. It sounded very cool. And it offered them, it gave them, it earned that in the reputation, the clinking dragon. Until one yes. day, it was removed very hastily by, I would say, loyal men <laughs> during... Yes. Was it the first Blackfire Rebellion? Most likely, yeah. Probably during the first Blackfire Rebellion. So Lord Derry was a loyalist to the Red Dragon, who are the the Targaryens that, you know, eventually Daenerys and Viserys are to send from them. But it, it's great. So the site the, the quote is the, the sight of the iron the black iron dragon made him, that is Lord Derry, wroth. So he cut <sighs> down the post, hacked the sign to pieces, <laughs> and cast them into the river. And this is the important part. I think this is this is something we, we could talk about this. I one think the, we have. Oh, wait. Please go on. Please go on. Sorry. No, no. One of the dragon's heads washed up on the quiet on the quiet aisle many years later, though by that time it was red with rust. You, I think you made me read this sentence within like 10 minutes of our friendship. Mm-hmm. Something like you need <laughs> to look this up and read this. And I'm just realizing that now it's coming full circle. Please that. continue. Please yeah, continue. I was, uh, so I, I was walking my dog. Yeah, I was walking my dog and talking on the phone. Yeah. Yes, it's I good, was also good. walking my dog. Interesting. Okay. All right. Yeah, we'll it all comes out. back. I don't yes. like all these patterns. Good memories. Hannah, please help me. <laughs> I got nothing other than questions. Well, yeah, same. Well, think about so this story works. I think as allegory, metaphor, one of the two. I, I always get the, the what what they actually mean confused. But so the idea same. of a black dragon washing away in the water and returning red with rust on the quiet isle, I think, is intended 
possibly, and I think it's it's not a hundred percent, but I think it's intended to symbolize young Griff as right. a black as a descendant of the black dragons washes under the narrow sea and comes back up in Westeros as a red dragon because he's rusty now. So he appears as a red dragon because he is posing as Aegon the sixth Targaryen, son of Rhaegar Targaryen and Ilya of Dorne. When in fact he's actually not that he's a, he's a black dragon he's a descendant of the Blackfires. But, you know Aegon probably doesn't. A- Young Griff doesn't know that necessarily, but yeah, I think it's a really cool way that George kind of tells that story, and it's it's cool too because you have to when you pick up a Feast for Crows, you have to realize it was published in two thousand five, and we don't actually fit, we don't actually meet Young Griff until two thousand eleven when the publication of A Dance with Dragons. So we have symbolism, allegory, metaphor, whatever you want to call it, being implemented in the Beautiful. book prior yeah six years prior to the next Beautiful. book coming out which shows us the the person who may be the person that uh is being symbolized in this little story i think it's a great little story too all the same all the little sights and sounds and the three-headed dragon clinking or clanking around and cutting the dragon into pieces and throwing in the river and it washes up anyways red with rust i think it's a it's, it's cool like i can really visualize and i think it's the strength of george's writing that you can visualize the things that you read on page if you write about this you're right about the winds of winter and the vacation thing too <laughs> <laughs> I believe you. <laughs> All it takes is being right on one thing. <laughs> right, exactly. I'm <laughs> trusting my gut with this guy, Hannah. I feel I like this is going an, on here. This is a hard thing to be wrong about, though. You know what I mean? Because I feel like you can interpret something like this in so many different ways that sure, um, this could be a hard thing to be wrong about. What has Septon Maribald been the harbinger of so far? Truth. Truth. And his dog is just so necessary. You know, oh, yeah. I really trust him because he knows how to navigate these dangerous situations completely on his own. And I don't know, I wish we could have had you on for the broken man speech. Oh, itself, it's, it's all good. Yeah, it's, it's a fantastic speech. Yeah. What do you think now that he's here and he's with Brienne and he doesn't have much of a role in what is the most important parts of the chapter, but he does hear in the beginning. What how do you feel about? I mean, Maribel's is, is great. He is, he's got all sorts of zingers here. And, and even like this chapter, there are things that I had forgotten. Like he, he, he references the game of Thrones in this chapter, which I had mm-hmm. totally forgotten. But he has this great quote um, where Sir Hyohan says, I never dreamed that keeping it in could be so deadly dangerous. Mm-hmm. And Sir Demerbold says, it is being common born. That is dangerous. When the great Lords play their game of Thrones, isn't that so dog? And then dog barks in agreement. So of course that's hundred percent accurate now, right? <laughs> of course because we have dogs as our guide. Yes. And, uh, you know, it's uh, it's cool. I, I think it's um, you, that that line from Jorah Mormont, which from a Game of Thrones, and also in the TV series from season one about when the High Lords play their Game of Thrones, it's it's the small folk that suffer. You know, when when the High Lords are playing the Game of Thrones, and I think that point is being that thematic point is being reemphasized over and over and over again. It's that the when thesis it's, of a Song of Ice and Fire, right? Essentially, it is right. So it doesn't matter if you're Stark or Lannister or Tully or Tyrell or. Baratheon, it doesn't matter what your banner is that you're holding or what's sewn on your, you know, your your surcoat when you're you're fighting these battles. But who the people that actually suffer are not always the combatants. It's the it's the small folk. And I think what's really cool about that line about it is common born that is dangerous when the great lords play their Game of Thrones, that bears itself out at the end of this chapter because it is the children that are in the most peril when the bloody bumbers show up at the end of the crossroads. And I think it's great that George kind of like sets that as foreshadowing 
what's going to come later on more as subtle, ambiguous shadowing, foreshadowing for what's going to be coming at the end of this chapter when it is the small folk and it's the common born people, these two, uh, was it the, one of the girls is two years old? My, you know, my daughter's two years old. I mean, I'm, I'm feeling like a real, like emotional resonance in, mm-hmm. in seeing, you know, these, these innocents in this, this chapter having to, to suffer as a result of, you know, Joffrey Baratheon cutting off Ned Stark's head back in the Game of Thrones and all these different kings crowning themselves or being crowned and watching as the small folk are dying by the droves because everyone wants to take the Iron Throne. Everyone wants to claim their lands. Everyone wants to defend themselves. And there's nothing wrong, necessarily wrong with any of that, claiming the crown or defending your lands or defending your people. But oftentimes who's caught in the crosshairs is the peasants, the common people, the people that don't deserve it, that didn't, had nothing to do with the conflict to begin with, but they're the ones that are that are there, that are suffering. And Heil Hunt, what's the what's the hurt if I participate and try to get mine while we're at it? Everything else is falling apart. Right. Don't we just get married. Right. Selwyn Tarth's on his way out before long. Chances are he won't father a son. What do you think? <laughs> Game of Thrones. What worst. do you think? <laughs> Ever heard of it? I mean, he's like he, he like he like a. Uh, he picks a, like an emotion to me that's like not revulsion, like with like Ramsey Bolton or like Joffrey or with some of the characters you meet in, in Slaver's Bay. He just like annoys the shit out of me. Like that whole, like, can you, you said imagine, he was like, the most boring guy of all time, right? You said he just has no, no character. Is that what you yeah. said? Yeah. I mean, he is, he's extraordinarily boring. He's extraordinarily common, not in terms of like his, his birth. Cause he is, he's of noble birth or knightly mm-hmm. birth. Um, I, you know, Sir Hyle Hunt, you, I think is is sworn to House Tarly, and it's um, if you guys are get real nerdy, the, the sigil of, of House Tarly is the Striding Huntsman. So there's been some minor theorizing that Sir Hyo Hunt is like a bastard descendant of of the Tarleys at some level, however many generations back. So he has noble birth behind him, but he's just so fucking common and average. He's just there's nothing there besides this extremely vain and venal ambition. Ah, oh, I will take Evenstar because I will become the Lord of Evenstar because Selwyn Tarth is not going to bear any more children. It's just, he's just the worst. It, Hannah's absolutely right. He's just the fucking worst. <laughs> he's just a definition rando. And I don't, right. I feel like, I don't know if people are theorizing about his lineage and things like that because they need to have some reason why he's still around. But I, <laughs> I just kind of feel like he's, you know, you read him and it's like, this guy's still here. He's, I feel like he's not really adding anything, but, you know, maybe that is the point is that he's just some guy who's out here trying to get his best. And even if his proposal to Brienne is annoying and <laughs> the worst, I mean, it's not also dumb. I mean, no. I think that there could be some uh, good things that would probably come out for both him and Brienne off of something like that. And he's kind of looking at it pretty logically but he just is like that's all i can think of he's just kind of a rando he's good for some laughs yeah yeah he's a he's interesting because he has an impact on brienne in this chapter too where she's like maybe i should go back to even star and marry this dude i mean it would be good to see my father again but then she thinks of who else but jamie lannister i would have to go back to jamie and say i'm sorry i failed in my mission and that would be heartbreaking for brienne and so she continues on because that's that's who Brienne is as a, as a person. She's not going to forsake her vows and her oaths. She's not going to retreat back to even star with her tail between her legs. She's going to push on until death, almost at the end of this chapter, or the success of her mission, mm-hmm. as as we find out. It's one of the things that's really um, 
fascinating too is that at the end of the crossroads. So if you guys remember from the end of the crossroads, this is place that so many events in the story happen. You have Arya right. and and the Hound murdering the shit out of the Tickler and his men <laughs> there back in Storm. But you also have really the end of the crossroads being the start of the War of the Five Kings. Uh, Emmett and I just covered Catelyn Five from A Game of Thrones, where that's where Catelyn encounters Tyrion Lannister at the end of the crossroads and takes him prisoner and then takes him onto the Vale after that. And the great thing about the end of the crossroads is that it's great in terms of like a, a metaphor for you know different plot crossroads that are intersecting in A Song of Ice and Fire, but it's also an actual crossroads too, because one of the things that Brienne thinks about is, well, Sansa might be at River Run with her uncle Brenda Blackfish. She might be in Winterfell uh, if I take the the King's Road North, or you know she might even be in the Erie where her aunt used to be in. And it's it's you know it's one of those roads never taken sort of things where you'd be like, hmm, I wonder what would have happened if we had seen Brienne actually take the Eastern Road and head up to the Vale and try and figure out if Sansa Stark was up there and whether she will she would encounter Elaine Stone who is posing who Sansa Stark is posing as at this point in the story. Yeah, and she so she so quickly went over the other options, which is a part of her character that, I mean, we see who she is and the kind of decisions that she makes when it it comes time to stand in the rain and stand up for those children. And there's no question mm -hmm. that Brienne is a true knight. But when we're inside of her head, I feel like it's such a subtle touch by George R. R. Martin and just how little she considers not doing the hard stuff. When she thinks about, oh, then I would have to go to King's Landing and give up, or then I would have to go back home and give up. It's not even something that she really considers as a way to go. No. She has much longer consideration time when she's talking about going to the Vale or uh, following the Red Fork to River Run and dealing with Jamie there. Oh, that would be pretty cool. I think yeah. I just thought about that. Like, hmm, <laughs> that might be a cool thing. But also, if she headed north and uh, dealt with, I mean, it's just like in any situation, it would be interesting to see what she would do. And yet she's here with Biter. It's it's cool because Brienne is um, she's adopting what George does in writing Brienne's story in Feast is that he's adopting what's known as a quote unquote knight errant story. So knight errant stories are stories where the medieval knight goes wandering in search of in search of of blah, 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 in search mm, of chivalrous that. adventure. Yeah, it's kind of a mouthful to say. Search I thought that of was an evil boss. Said, blah, blah, blah. It's like a level nine. <laughs> yeah, I mean, basically chivalry and adventure. Well, she found she found it here. Oh yeah. She found the chivalry, but did she find the adventure? I'm not sure that the end of her chapter is really much of an adventure, but she proves herself to be the most chivalrous person in Westeros, in my opinion, by the end of this chapter, for sure. For sure. If you consider facing darkness in an extreme form and dealing with removing bad people from the land, this is adventure. Yeah. And we don't know how the rest of the fight's going either, but she assumes Sir Heil joined the fray. Yeah, you wonder if he did or not. I don't. I'd actually remember if he did or not. There's a lineup of bad guys, and they're going to leave Brienne and Gendry quiet. They just want some horses. Right. They've been out pillaging. And like you said earlier, they're clearly on the run because they're being less outwardly evil than they usually are. You've got to remember what kind of guys these are. They're not cool dudes. No. They used to hang out with Vargo Hote. They don't have a lot of good jokes. You know what <laughs> I mean? They don't have a lot of good jokes. They don't have a lot of good jokes. <laughs> it's a sad, bleak environment. <laughs> They're not having a good time. They're not having any fun. And someone's no. like, hey, we should just go. And he was like, no, hold on. I'm pretty sure that's the woman that talked shit to me before the one-on-one -on -one starts. And I knew immediately that he was doomed. I was like, well, you're going one-on-one -on -one with Brienne, who has Oathkeeper, which is 
a Valyrian steel sword wielded by Brienne of Tarth. We mm-hmm. need to talk about this. Yes. I don't know if this is just me being I'm too romantic with the text, but when I saw that she was entering another dance, I thought of the time when she was young, when Renly helped her, and how that was also something that was difficult for her to, to, to punch through and to see the other side of, but she did, and she continued to grow. And yeah. maybe she needed to face down the rest of the Brave Companions because they were going to be looming over her head for a very long time if she didn't. Yeah. I mean, the, the thing about it is that Brienne is very much influenced by the songs and stories that she's heard. She's she's very much like Sansa Stark in a way. And, you know, Sansa is very much a part of this culture, this feminine culture in Westeros that adheres to these songs of brave knights and and uh, and noble ladies and what the brave knights will do in these stories. And Brienne is, you know, she's influenced by that. Whereas Sansa is more attuned to the kind of the noble lady part, the damsel in distress thing. Brienne is much more attuned to, ah, well, the, the brave knight, you know, defending the weak, you know, holding the land, you know, being the person that is worthy of the title of chivalrous knight, even though that she doesn't even bear the surname of Sir in front of her. So it's, it's great, right? It's, it's great that, Brienne has adopted true knighthood despite all the horrors that she's witnessed on the road to the end of the crossroads, despite even the way that she's been treated by everyone, even Renly. You know, as much as Brienne looks up to Renly and sees him as a shining example of chivalry in the story, when Loras talks with Jamie back in Storm, Loras says that that Renly thought that that Brienne was ridiculous and, you know, dressing up all in male and armor and things like that. So Brienne's story is not necessarily true, but she still takes a good outlook from it, a good way, a good mode of, of operating in a dangerous and rotten place to live. Mm-hmm. Well, and despite <sighs> all the cliches too, I would throw in there of like what a knight is quote unquote supposed to be. This is what it really is kind of thing. Yeah, that's mm-hmm. true. I mean, this is it. This is the stage right here. Who is knightly and who is not, if that's a yeah. thing. If you're going to make that a thing, if that's part of what keeps us all from just eating each other in general, like Biter did here, chomp, chomp, chomp. If that's part of all this, then she is a knight. She is the knight, like you said, the knight. Yeah. You know, it's it's a great point that, that George makes in, in this chapter is that Brienne is doing the absolutely correct thing and standing up for the weak and the innocent for the children, but there's still consequences for standing up for the weak, the innocent, for the children here. She gets half her face bitten off by freaking Biter in this chapter, and she's very nearly killed at the end of this chapter, is only saved by by Gendry. And that's, it's great and all, but I think, you know, George is emphasizing a realistic setting where you can do the right thing, but that still doesn't mean that you're going to be saved from the consequences of doing the right thing. Mm-hmm. Oh, I yeah. think that, you're I think guaranteeing what, the consequences. Yeah. You know, that's what distinguishes George's writing, I think, from so many other fantasy type writing is that, you know, in a traditional fantasy setting, the hero stands up and does the right thing and emerges and emerges from a little scrape like this without a, without a scratch on them. But Brienne, you know, she's bitten. She loses like she's bit, both her cheeks, I think, are torn off by Biter. And, you know, she's thinking it's one of the most horrifying sh- passages where she's thinking he's eating me he's eating me and you're like this time he chewed and swallowed he's eating me she realized but she had no strength left to fight him any longer yeah something i'm curious about though as we're reading this because i feel like we're talking about this being one of the most like brutal awful detailed look into 
Brian being eaten. <laughs> my kind of my question that I was kind of thinking about is what other characters have we seen go through really gruesome events? Um, but we haven't necessarily heard all the specific details about it. Like I think, think about like Catelyn, we don't, yeah. we don't feel like we feel Brienne's hurt. And I think Jamie is kind of cut off a little bit with his, well, the story of <laughs> how that happens is kind <laughs> of cut <laughs> as his hand is cut off. <laughs> but, you know, I think that to me, it was interesting that I felt like more so than any other point of view character who's gone through trauma, we've been deep in the trenches of it with Brienne right here. And maybe I'm just not forgetting something else, but I don't know what the answer to that might be other than just an interesting choice. But the fact that this scene continues on and on in a way that I think other ones don't, I just thought was kind of interesting are you um, talking about when he threw back his head and he was howling and just sticking his tongue out and dripping blood? Mm-hmm. It just doesn't end, you know? Sliding from his mouth out and out and out. I mean, I guess the closest thing you could think of is things happening with Reek, but those are often yeah. off, so out of, of body. Yeah. yeah. A lot of the worst stuff that happens to, to Theon in those Reek chapters are him remembering Past losing tense. his fingers and sure. remembering losing his favorite plaything. Um mm-hmm. not to laugh. But um here it's 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 on page. It's visceral. George wants us to experience the horror firsthand through Brienne. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what makes the very last few the last two sentences of this chapter so fucking amazing because George releases all that tension with, and it's great. It always makes my 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 skin right now is, is kind of like a tingling. His tongue is a foot long. Brienne thought just before the darkness took her. Why? Oh it almost looks god. like a sword. Like yeah, like oh my god, wow, that's crazy, <laughs> right? Like it, <laughs> so you know, good. it's it's so horrific. All the things that Brienne experiences, being knocked to the ground, she takes you know a a sword cut to her or an axe cut. I can't remember to her to her shoulder, and she's eaten alive by by biter but then when george is like brings gendry into the into the fight you're like man that was worth it like that just it, it's such a moment that's you know i just i i so wish that this had been seen on game of thrones the show can you imagine gwendolyn christie and um who's the dude who plays gendry you guys met him at have you guys oh, met him actually i have not met him okay nope. i can't remember his name Top of my head. Only in my dreams. Let me look up. Gendry. Joe Dempsey. Joe Dempsey, yeah. 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 Can you imagine like Joe Dempsey coming up behind Biter and throwing putting his sword through through Biter's throat and with Gwendolyn Christie down there? I think that would have been fantastic yeah. TV. And you know, same. One, one, yeah, I mean, one of the things that George's uh, did before he wrote a song by and Fire is that he was a TV screenwriter and he wrote for shows like Beauty and the Beast back in the 1980s and early 1990s. And you can feel the cinematic elements of this chapter and the way that George wrote TV. And I think maybe George at this point hadn't signed any contracts with HBO or anything like that. But you can see him integrating his experiences as a TV writer to make this so visceral and so climactic and so tense and then relieving all the tension at the end with Gendry coming up behind and saving the day just before – just before Brienne can be killed by Biden. Yeah, it's such a strength that he brings to the table. Yeah, for sure. I thought it was kind of phallic. Did you guys think the same thing? Was it just me? No, I mean, George uses that sword and and, and, and 
penis thing imagery all over the place. You know, uh, Emmett has talked on on, on the Nauticast, uh, the podcast that we do together, about how uh, you know you have Lady Barbara Dustin talking in Theon's chapters about how Brandon Stark, her her former lover, who had of course been killed by the Mad King before the start of Robert's Rebellion, how he had called it his his. Uh, he had called it a sword and he always wanted a sword to be red and stuff like that. And mm-hmm. yeah, you know, so I think that George intentionally uses, utilizes that imagery and does, is insert the wrong word to be using here? Insert maybe. The, the imagery. Or the yeah, right word. The wrong completely word. completely the right word. word. Yeah, right, one of the two. <laughs> <laughs> for this, uh, for to, you know, the sword and and, uh, and phallic imagery is intentional in George's part of a lot of these cases. And I think it's, it's true here as well. So basically she's going through the ringer. She's facing... Mostly all of it right now. Yeah, here it is. Yeah, I mean, dripping this is, blood. This, this is the. This is th- this could be the climax of our arc, right? This could be the final chapter of Brienne's arc, but but it's not. Potentially, but it's yeah. not. It's not. But it's not. Even though we all flipped ahead, right? <laughs> I mean, I, I remember. I, I I remember reading this chapter. I think the first time I read it was back in 2012, and I was like, "Well, shit, Brienne's dead. That's awesome." And then, of course, there's the next Brienne chapter, and then and at the end of that chapter, I'm like. Well, shit, Priya's dead. dead. Yeah, for real this time, yeah. <laughs> right? And then you get to the Jamie chapter in Dance of Dragons, you're like, how Wait the a fuck is she alive? You mm-hmm. know? Like, come on. How many times is this person going to seem seemingly be at the cusp of, of dying and then just somehow show up in, in, in the next chapter in someone else's chapter? So, you know, it, it's, it's great, though. It's, I enjoy it. Yeah, Brienne rules. This is too long without knowing. You know, we need to know more. We need another book. Redundant, oh, I know, but dear God, already waiting between now or Brienne eight and in the that final Jamie chapter in a Dance of Dragons, even that was must have been just harrowing. Yeah, yeah, I I, I can't imagine. Like, uh, I mean, you guys will talk about this in Brienne eight, but uh, you know, there's a everybody wondered what the what the word was that Brienne shouted at the end of her chapter, and uh, mm-hmm. George didn't say anything until 2012 when he. Uh, you revealed what the word was that she shouted, and the word was sword. It was so exciting. Yes. Well, any any final thoughts on Brand Seven before we talk about her love interest, Jamie? <laughs> as, <laughs> as we always canon. say, as you always say, if you're not reading along, that you should go back and read this chapter. I feel like oh a broken gosh. record, but at least go back mm-hmm. and read the second half of the chapter. Yes. Or the whole read thing. It, read it all Three over times. and over again. Yeah. So, uh, Jamie, huh? <laughs> <laughs> Here we go, Jamie. This is uh, the chapter begins with a description of Sir Brendan Tully. And in honor of you on the podcast today, Jeff, I will read it. Yes, please do. I can't wait. For your honor, which is a horse. The the brooch that fastened Sir Brendan Tully's cloak was a black fish, wrought in jet and gold. His ringmail was grim and gray. Over it, (laughs) he wore greaves, gorget, gauntlets, pauldron, and polyanes of blackened steel. None half so dark as the look upon his face as he waited for Jamie Lannister at the end of the drawbridge, alone atop a chestnut courser. Ooh, tough word. Cap, cap, <laughs> caparisoned. That doesn't sound right. Caparisoned? Just mumble yeah. your way through it. You're doing great. In red. I, I, if anyone's listening, we're going to figure this out for you right now. No, <laughs> we're we? going to. Yeah, I'm going <laughs> to define it right now. Hold on. Search. Oh, I got it in my Kindle. I can uh, define it. An ornamental covering spread over a horse's saddle or a harness. Yeah. Be decked out to be decked out in <laughs> rich decorative decorative colorings. A chestnut courser caparisoned in red and blue. 
That kind of took the zing off the end of it, didn't it? <laughs> it was worth it. <laughs> Thanks. It was Thanks. worth it. So I picture you, that's the way I picture you, even though I know uh, that it's the, it's much more beautiful in sight in actuality. I, I picture this grim and gray version of you when I think of you, by the way. I appreciate that, although, you know, <laughs> not like 55 years old yet. Not, not sure, quite there. I get it. I know. I know. <laughs> but, I, don't, I, I Actually, uh, for vacation, I got to grow up beard for the first time. I found some gray and I was like... Wait a second. This. I don't know about this. <laughs> Wait a minute. It's coming for us all. I know. Right? It's okay. I have a ton of gray hair. That's fine. <laughs> he loves me not. What I like so much about this in every interaction that Jamie has with Blackfish is this line where he says, Jamie could still see the great knight who had once enthralled the squire with tales mm. of the nine penny kings. Like, no matter, we talk a lot about how the story kind of turns over to the kids the young people, you know, near the end of where we are in the story um, and the consequences and fallout of kind of their fathers, but to kind of be able to see it here with somebody like Jamie. And um, it's just a reminder of like somebody like, somebody like Brendan Tully is somebody who's been a hero, you know, that he kind of grew up hearing about and then to then be here treating with him, but to still have in the back of his mind, like this guy that he was, and everybody was kind of enthralled with in, in his tales yeah. as he wanted to become a great knight himself. I think is I like that we get these slips in here um, as a reminder of like where we are in the world and orient ourselves in terms of who these players are. I think it's pretty great, especially yeah, with somebody mean, like Jamie. We talked about it in the Brienne chapter how Brienne was influenced by the songs and stories growing up and Jamie was very much the same way listening to the stories of Brendan Tully growing up and hearing his stories of heroism and bravery out on 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 the stepstones during the War of the Nine Penny Kings. And this is the guy that he's facing now. I think it really kind of contextualizes so many of the emotions that Jamie is putting in here and that this is his idol. I mean, can you imagine I mean, if, if you're like a sports fan, I'm, I'm from Baltimore, so we, the, the only Baltimore icon that we have that's a, a bit mostly unblemished at this point is, is Cal Ripken Jr. Can you imagine facing this guy and having him talk shit to you for like 15 minutes? You know, that would, Insane. That would be crushing, right? Yeah. Crushing emotionally. And to not have your react. Hero. Yeah. Right. yeah. You, you have to be the person be like – be the tra- Jamie tries to be the better man throughout this chapter, and it's like, yeah, you've learned how to do you know, it, but Calvin it doesn't Jr. matter, man. <laughs> you've learned how to pretend, but it just doesn't matter. Sorry, it, it doesn't matter, and it does matter for for good reason. I mean, like we talked about before, Brendan Tully has no reason to trust Jamie Lannister. There's there's nothing in Jamie that just oozes something that people want to gravitate towards in terms of trustworthiness. Because Jamie's got the wrong family name. Jamie is the the scion of. The family that despoiled the Starks and the Tullys, you know, he's the leader of the siege camp that is wheeling out Brendan Tully's nephew, Edmure. And, and granted, again, Jamie is not responsible for what the Freys are doing with Edmure Tully, but he's in command at this point, and he still holds some responsibility ultimately as, as the person in charge of this endeavor. There's no reason that Brendan should be like, yeah, sure, let's negotiate for real. There's, there's no reason why you would trust this guy whatsoever especially if he's but, not gonna have the vulnerability to talk about things in a real way when they meet right, something that's yeah. happened to him and what actually happened and how he really feels about it right. what were you gonna say hannah i was gonna say i can't remember exactly what i was gonna say like, but i was but. gonna say something along the lines of do we what do we think about Blackfish's actions in this chapter. And do you think maybe he was a little hard on Jamie? I think it, no. 
I believe <laughs> that Blackfish's reasons were were just, and that it's, it appears that he deals in that justice. And I tried to imagine what it would be like to be at the top of all of their concerns, to be the representative of all of the, the things that have befallen their family, and to be across the table from an enemy, and it not really mattering about them necessarily, that just that the travesties had built up so much that that comparison he made about losing some of theirs, but taking so many of theirs with them, you have to think about what it is to be in that point of view and to be at the end of that sword point and to make that sort of, to make that agreement with your own mortality and be like, this is how it's going to go. And this is the manner in which we're going to, we're going to leave the world and we're going to, we're going to do it in a way to protest all the bullshit that you guys represent mm-hmm. with all of your fray people standing on the other side of the of the uh, blockade, not understanding what you're currently doing, not keeping your shit together. So it's not pride. Well, it's, you know, one of the things that we always have to keep in mind about these chapters is we have Jamie's point of view. We know what's going on inside Jamie's head. We've seen that Jamie has made Progress. Progress. Right. We'll call it progress, right? In terms of not being the arrogant son of a bitch that he has been in the first two books. We've been we've we understand now. So one of the things I think is really fascinating about this this interaction that he has with the Blackfish is where Brendan Tully starts throwing the fact that he's the Kingslayer and how he broke his oath with Aris Targaryen in his face. Well, Brendan for Brendan Tully, that makes total sense, right? But we have Jamie's perspective now. We were there when Jamie and Brienne, where Jamie shared his experiences with Brienne in the bathtub at Harrenhal. We know that Jamie's action was totally justified, that Jamie saved the lives of a million of, of a half million people in King's Landing by killing Eris the second Targaryen. Brennan Tully doesn't know that. Brennan Tully is the, has the same perspective of Ned Stark, and that he thinks that Jamie just killed the guy who was about to lose the about to lose Robert's Rebellion in order to bring his family advantage and the peace to come after Eris the Second Targaryen was overthrown. So I, I think you always have to keep that perspective in mind that Brendan Tully doesn't have the same vantage point that we as readers do. Yeah, we like Jamie. Yeah, we think that he's not as bad of a dude as he could possibly be and that his motivations here are pure-ish, not really, but they're not altogether evil. But that's Again, that's our perspective. Brandon Tully has no reason to trust Jamie whatsoever. The only person, unless Jamie drastically changes his character and the way that he communicates how he's feeling with everyone, the only Brendan that's going to help him is mm-hmm. Brendan Rivers because he's the only one, either him or Brand Stark, or, uh, they're the yep. only ones that are going to be able to see what this guy's been up to. So unless there's a moment where they need to swoop in and, and speak for him and say, whoa, 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 by the way. <laughs> Unless that they can directly come in between a bad thing happening or to help make something help turn a situation to his favor, whether through magic or whether through their physical presence or people that they're, you know, controlling or creatures that they're controlling because Jamie's somehow earned some kind of moral uh, place in the, I don't know, the pantheon of who's moving forward as they're fighting the White Walkers. Unless that happens, um, I don't know how much of it really matters because as we've seen people like Blackfish still exist and people like the phrase are still on his side and he's still charged with what he's charged with from Cersei and they still have the kind of relationship that they have. And well, all of this pr- growth and progress is, is fine. It's just happening in his head. Yeah, it is. It's, it's in his head and it's not, 
mean, we, one of the things that's that's interesting is that Jamie thinks about and the at, while while he's getting all of this this savagery from from Tully, it was on his tongue to speak at Brienne and the sword he'd given her, but the blackfish was looking at him the way that Eddard Stark had looked at him when he'd found him on the Iron Throne with the Mad King's blood upon his blade. And I think that's really important and vital in our understanding of of Jamie, in that he has the ability to communicate to Brendan Tully that he's trying his best to uphold the vows that he swore to Catelyn Stark back at the end of A Clash of Kings. But because he is he sees Brendan Tully looking at him the same way that Ned Stark did when Ned Stark looked at him with scorn and judgment at the end of Robert's Rebellion with the Mad King dead at his feet and Jamie sitting on the Iron Throne, he can't get past that. He can't get past the fact that he, that Brendan Tully sees him as the Kingslayer. He doesn't see him as Jamie Laster. He sees him as as a villain, as a figure of worth the same scorn that Eddard Stark gave him back, you know, 15 years prior, or 20 back, you know, 17 years prior to, to, to the events from this chapter. Mm-hmm. Oh, and not just Brendan Tully, but so many other people in this chapter kind of have that same reaction. And what I'm wondering is, yeah. as we see his internal redemption arc, um, do we think that that's something that's ever going to be able to really change in other people's perception of him? Would have been nice if it would happen now. Right, or is it going to get to the point where, like, Jamie realizes... Because I feel like so much of this chapter is dealing with this that no one's ever going to look at him any different than the way that Ned looked at him um, yeah. when he found them. You know, is that is he ever going to be able to escape that? And is he going to at one point just be like, "Well, forget it. What's the point of me trying to change who I am or do my best?" Or you know, even if he's not necessarily that self aware, um, that's kind of something I was thinking a lot about in this chapter because it's. This yeah. is not the last time things are going to be this way, and it won't be the last time that we haven't seen yet. You know what I mean? So I don't really know. Do we think that the other option for his redemption would be <clears throat> would be Bran? I I think he's he says at the end of his storm arc, right? That's his one chance of redemption is to secure and save Sansa Stark, and he's sending Brienne on that mission for the sake of of Catelyn Stark's daughter and. That's what he views. This is, I think he calls it his "quote unquote" last chance at honor, and at the end of Storm, um, I, I think it's it's fascinating when you think about whether Jamie will get past all these people looking down at him, looking at his one genuinely good deed that he did at the end of Robert's Rebellion, and always looking at him as the villain as a result of that. Whether he's he'll get past that, and I think. Maybe I think we can see some fruits of that at the end of this chapter because he's he's still trying his hardest not to break the oath that he swore to Catelyn Stark. Mm-hmm. He, even though he he's in a war council and he has a plan in place, he has one final option in the in the in the vise of of Edmure Tully to end the siege without any blood being shed, without him breaking his oath, and without the the without more people dying for a war that's essentially over at this point in the story. Right. He had a lot of opportunity to not <laughs> in this chapter, so. Yeah, I think it's I think it's good for him. But although what he does to Edmure at the very end, I mean, I don't want to say that's necessarily a bad thing, but it's pretty cold. It's it's very cold. <laughs> it's it's uh... it's also kind of funny. We were texting Hannah. I'm sorry, I was doing this without you. I was texting Jeff. I was like, hey, uh, I can't believe you were texting other we start, people that wasn't. Me. Can we start 15 <laughs> minutes later uh, than we agreed? He's like, yeah, 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 that's cool. Uh, I was like, man, these chapters. He was like, right, and then I just pasted a 
the most recent Jamie quote that I was stewing over. And he replied, just Jamie is savage. <laughs> so that's how you feel about Jamie. Jamie is the definition of savage in this chapter. Yeah. You know, he, Brendan Tully is savage at the beginning of this chapter to Jamie and Jamie responds in like manner to Edmure Tully. You know, it's, it's almost like a reciprocal kind of circular type of thing where Brendan Tully is talking shit to Jamie for a long time on that drawbridge outside of River Run. And then Jamie returns the favor to, to Brendan's nephew in Edmure by a talking all sorts of shit about what he's planning on doing if the castle will not surrender to him. So, but yeah. After he I, saved Edmure. After he much. saved Edmure. Yeah. You know, that's, it's, it's cool, right? I mean, I, again, it's one of these moments. I think it's emblematic of who Jamie Lannister is in that when he comes up to Edmure at the gallows hanging there, you know, he, he brings Sir Ellen Payne with him and Oof. he's, everybody thinks that Jamie's about to have Edmure killed, beheaded right there. But instead, what does Jamie do? He cuts Edmure Tully out off of the gallows and cuts the noose around his neck and feeds Fish him and leash. gives him a bath. Fish yeah, on a right? leash. <laughs> Fish on a leash. Right. He can... Yeah. <laughs> George. Like a fish on a leash. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that needs to be remixed. <laughs> <laughs> Even just for that one moment. Fine. That'd be good. Yeah, without having like Tobias Menzies like face kind of there, like kind of bobbing back and forth on it. That'd be pretty cool. I'd be down. That makes it even better. One of the funny things about um this this chapter is all sorts of like really fun humor parts of it. And um to kind of circle back to that Brendan Jamie interaction, it's it's my favorite joke in all of Song West and Fire, so I feel like I have to like read it verbatim. And that um Jamie's talking about Jane Westerling and how she's been pardoned and that no harm will come to her. And he says no harm will come to her. You have my word on that. Your word of honor. Sir Brennan raised an eyebrow. Do you even know what honor is? And Jamie's like, a horse. I will swear any oath that you require. <laughs> and uh, it, it's funny to me because Jamie names his, his horse honor. And that's, mm-hmm. So that's the uh, – maybe it's not as funny as I thought it was, but I, th- I thought it was funny. It's a good – it's perfect. I mean, this is an epic moment. There's a lot of stuff happening. All of these humans wear armor and swords, and they still think that killing each other brutally is an acceptable thing. And he has the audacity to be like, the horse's name is Honor. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> How did you feel reading this meeting finally? And then, you know, revisiting it for this for this episode, obviously. But geez, this is your namesake. You know, yeah. Like when you decided to join the the world of Twitter, <laughs> this is your dad. <laughs> this is my dad, right? <laughs> and my talk dad. about, and you want to talk about a song of ice and fire with all these crazy people that you'd eventually meet. Um, you picked Brendan Beefish yeah, as your right. username, so this is it. It was like kind of a lark too. So I mean, that's a I, I, not to dispo, dispel anything. That you're <laughs> thinking that I, I was just trying trying to pick a Reddit username back in 2012 because I was like, I want to participate in this community, and I've got so many important that's things right, to Reddit. say. Yeah. What name is going to make me famous? <laughs> right, I, I wasn't even thinking that because I didn't think I was going to be famous from from. What this name era. will George R. R. Martin choose to hide behind? <laughs> Brendan <laughs> B. Fish. <laughs> was it this chapter that that made you fall in love with the character with that guy, or was it just his normal? Just vibe in general. I think it was his vibe in general. I think he's a uh, he's a fantastic minor character. I mean, he, or even secondary character, if you want to call him that. Yeah, I think he's he's so fun to to read about, and the fact that he's has this history behind him. You know, you understand why a character like Jamie would be enthralled by the stories that he tells. Idolize this guy. Right. He has, he has such an enthralling backstory. He has all these war stories he could he has tell. A good from, reputation. Ah, Ooh, everything Jamie wants and more. Right. 
he's got a shining reputation too, yeah. right? Exactly. Like you said, he's he's got everything going for him. He's the kind of knight that you want to emulate if you're a young squire like Jamie Lannister was. And, you know, in the in the story of Song of Ice and Fire, Brendan Tully does awesome things in the story. I mean, like in the next Jamie chapter, not to get too far ahead. You know, he's the guy that he swims under the under the uh, they raise the portcullis just high enough so that he can swim under the castle gate and swim away to safety before the the Lannisters can take River Run. So it's a uh, he's still out there. He's still doing blackfish things, still doing beefish yeah, things. Which I, I appreciate that, Hannah. I feel like you're not buying it. Oh, I I'm cool with it. <laughs> Do you not think that he was too hard on his stubbornness as well, and maybe put some of his people in unnecessary danger? Yeah, I mean, I think that, like, to play devil's advocate, as we were talking about with the Brienne chapter in terms of people who become casualties of other people trying to live out their oaths or defend their own honor or their own ideals, I think that he maybe could have run run into a similar situation as he is thinking about what's going to be the best move when it comes to what Jamie has to offer. But then, you know, at the same time, it's kind of what we're talking about. He, it's understandable why, as I mean, I don't need to reiterate what has already been said, but um, I just think it is just another piece of that conversation in terms of the casualties of these types of decisions. Um, yeah. Regardless of what the outcome eventually ends up being. But um, I think that I'm just biased because <laughs> I see Jamie from my own biased eyes of his own voice. Um, and I see how hard he's trying. <laughs> he's wanted. such a try hard. <laughs> he's just trying so Which hard. He's trying so hard, Jamie. <laughs> but, but you're, you're, you're right, though. I mean, Brendan Tully, he's not necessarily as shining of a, of a knight as he seems in this chapter and as the stories make him out to be. I think it's the point is made in this in the previous Jamie chapter that – that Brendan Tully, in opposition to what what uh, Edmure did back in the Clash of Kings, Brendan Tully turned out every single person that could be defended by the walls of River Run in order to secure supplies, and he took everything that he could into the castle of River Run itself mm-hmm. and burned everything else in the Riverlands. So, again, we're getting back to that whole theme that Martin is talking about: is when the High Lords play their Game of Thrones, it's the small folk who are suffering. Brendan Tully is defending River Run, and yeah, you're like. Great, that's awesome. It's so cool that you're defending River Run. But what are you defending River Run for? Right, Rob Stark is dead. He lost. He's 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 the war is done. Right. I mean, you, you know, you have the Brotherhood Without Banner still out there, and I'm not saying that that's not worth supporting their cause and fighting against the tyranny that the Lannisters and especially the Freys bring to the Riverlands. But the war is done, man. Like, there's no point in fighting anymore. His allies but, are gone. Yeah, even the allies, like, you know, in that war council, they've got Lord Vance, Lord Piper, you know, all of Mark Grafton, all of these dudes who had fought on Rob Stark's side in the War of the Five Kings. Now they're fighting on behalf of the Lannisters because they don't have any choice. They know that the war is done. The war is over, but Brendan Tully refuses to, refuses to, the war will be over when Brendan, the war will be over for Brendan Tully when he's ready for it to be over. And in his case, <laughs> Brendan Tully is ready to die for a lost cause. And I think there, there's a romanticism involved in that for sure. I mean, you you think about things like, I mean, you take the example of, you know, the Jews in the Warsaw Ghetto in 1943, 1944, where they had no chance to survive against the onslaught of the Nazis, but yet they kept resisting because they had, because that was, you, you need to resist tyranny, right? You always resist right. 
evil men doing bad things. At the same time, the the Lancers, as bad as they are, are maybe not the Nazis in the story. Maybe not. Right. Maybe? I don't, don't want to. <laughs> <laughs> right. I, I guess that's good. Yeah. We've got some pretty bad guys that they don't know about yet. So a point can be made that these are just other people, you know, that are mm-hmm. dealing less less definite, less final of a blow than the White Walkers would. Yeah. I heard this. This is a little bit of a tangent, but um, it reminds me of there's all these stories of folks who fought in the Vietnam War who were sent out into the jungle and who, who were given orders to not leave their posts until commanded by their direct commander who yeah. were out in those jungles for 10, 15 years mm-hmm. after the war ended because no. of, yeah, and yeah. I'll, I'll send you some of the stories because they're actually really fascinating because they had not yet been given direct orders from their commanders who had long since passed that they could Jeez. be relieved from their duty of defending their honor and what they believe in and what they're fighting for. You know, it's all this very mm-hmm. grandiose type of, of stuff. And so I just... That was something that this situation kind of reminded me of. I think that may be much more extreme than what they're dealing with right here at River Run. But um, at what point? He's also dealing with heartbreak, right? Yeah. I mean, you have to look at him as dealing with a lot of of trauma. I mean, most of his family is dead now. His nephews, his nieces, his brother, they're all gone. Everyone is that's special to Brendan Tully is dead now. And, you know, we can talk about this at the end of this chapter because I think this is a really cool theory at the end of it. But he doesn't know that Catelyn Stark is alive in some form in the version of, of Lady Stoneheart. And, you know, again, George has made the point that Lady Stoneheart is not the same character as Catelyn Stark is. But that's, you know, that tragedy has an impact, right? There's no way that Brendan Tully could come out of the War of the Five Kings having seen the trauma of war up and up close and personal because, as again, he was leading Rob Stark's Outriders in the War of the Five Kings and he also saw tragedy in seeing most of his family extinguished in this war. And that's that has to have an impact on what on the decision that Brennan Tully is making and resisting forever and ever and ever until he's finally dead at the end of this war. He's almost got like a death wish, right? Mm-hmm. Well, there was – who said it at some point in this chapter when they are saying let's see, a good death is all the Blackfish can hope for? When yeah. when Jamie's talking to Edmure, that's kind of – that's all he can hope for at this point is to go out with some sort of – not Place in an embarrassing blood. or diminishing way. Like he wants to go out as a man. And so I think that that kind of plays into where he says, you know, Edmure, you've got this life ahead of you. You can figure out X, Y, Z, you know, this is up to you. You have control. You've got a, f- uh, the fate of what happens is in your hands. You're not on the other side of this. Um, you know, so kind of, I know this is coaxing him along to make decisions that are going to be helpful for Jamie's cause, but sympathizing for sure with this kind of like last stand mentality for my family. But right. it's just kind of an interesting juxtaposition. Ugh. But it, the, the thing about it is that it's not just a last stand for Brendan Tully. Like he's putting the entire garrison at River Run. Everyone is going to die if they take right. arms against the against the, the Tully garrison. Not just, and it's, you know, Jamie's plan is to send first the Riverlanders against the walls of River Run. <laughs> so sad. Then the Freys. <laughs> then finally, when all the arrows have been finally extinguished. Our and, yeah, exactly. So, <laughs> Brendan Tully, as much as you admire his resistance against the Lannisters here, you also have to recognize that he's putting not just himself in danger. If he wanted to go out in a blaze of glory, he could have done so. He could have ridden from the gates of Winter, of not Winterfell, of River Run on a horse. 
and charge the fray lines or the Lancer lines, or everyone wants to fight against and die heroically and gloriously in a final, you know, one last ride for the, you know, the, the one last for the Cowboys' last ride. Sure, but he doesn't. He he it's is not practical. Yeah. It's not practical. He's endangering everyone around him. And yeah, again, as much as you admire the guy, you have to keep all of that context in mind because it definitely helps to contextualize the decision that he's endangering thousands of lives with his action here. The context in this chapter, when you see, Hannah, you were talking about um, these these younger characters growing and fulfilling the roles, finding themselves in the roles of all these faded characters that we discussed so earlier in the series. And, you know, it's been a part of our journey through A Song of Ice and Fire to get Jamie this far into what he's dealing with and to be in this war council and to be talking to other people that are that are older to him and not as air quotes powerful, but more rooted in their situation and feeling pretty comfortable clearly because they talk about things in a pretty comfortable way and they think about these moves and these decisions that affect tons of lives in a very casual way we see like these just sort of adults who've let who've let other people who want to pipe up and be important or feel important or have claims or be the ones that all the attention's on, be the ones that maybe put up on a gallow or be the ones that may have to go treat on the bridge instead of standing off on the side and wondering what actually happens. To see them just sort of playing with the situation, especially with Tywin being gone and not having anyone to really answer to because Jamie's <laughs> Jamie. They're kind of answering to Jamie here, but not really. We see what Ryman Frey was up to until Jamie put him on his ass you know this situation is like that for all of them he's just the dumber one out of all of them and (laughs) blackfish knows this too so he's just so just fed up with the world that he lives in he's like how could this be the world hoster tully's dead catlin's dead everyone's dead what what is this world we've just don't everyone that i that has like ideas about what kind of a person i am out in the world all these lannister and Frey. I don't know what you would call them, just kind of like third tier successors yeah. to things, yeah. have all these well stories about me and they're about to win. They're just about to win. And he's <laughs> just like, damn it. Nah, forget it. I'm going to knock over the game board or at least I'm going to hide the dice until someone else knocks over the game board. Yeah. I mean, yeah, you said it. <laughs> <laughs> it's a good way of putting it. I agree. It's ridiculous. But like with all these people that just that are in you know, like just normal Lannister people, normal Frey people. We've got Emin Frey. He had the audacity to literally pull out a slip of paper mid-conversation and be like, mm-hmm. well, I don't know. The king said I could have what I want, and I don't want you to attack him <laughs> in this way. It's like he literally was ready with a piece of paper up his sleeve. This is what we're dealing with, people. So it's like it's altogether really serious and not serious at all. And that's why Blackfish talks to Jamie the way he does on that bridge. He's like, hey, so pretty crazy how you never are true to any of your oaths, huh? <laughs> and Jamie's like, I don't know what you mean, man. You're my hero. Can you stop doing that? And he's like, yeah, that's pretty <laughs> fucked up how you never have done anything right in your whole life, huh? Right. Yeah. Isn't that weird? And he's like, I don't know. I just, uh, uh, that's it. That's What's going to happen? Right. And what is going to happen? What I think is also of interest in, in Jamie's perspective in all of this is that the shadow of his father is looming over 
his decisions here. He has that line after he's dealing with this fractious, 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 fractious council in with the Freys and the Riverlanders and his own Westermen and even Frey waving his piece of paper around. He says, my father's councils were never like this. Mm -hmm. Like, he's just like, how is it possible that, that Tywin Lannister could get away with what he's doing? And I have to deal with all these petty assholes with their own petty grievances that I have to deal with. It's so frustrating for him. And it reverberates out where he's like constantly trying to live up to the example of Tywin Lannister, but he's, He's not. I mean, the, that's one of the, the things that's made clear in Jamie's fifth chapter when he meets up with his his aunt, Aunt Jenna, who talks about how Jamie has a bit of her different brothers in, in him. He's got, you know, the swordsmanship ability. He's got the wit. He's got that kind of Lannister charm. But he's not Tywin. Tyrion is Tywin's son. Jamie's not necessarily Tywin's son in terms of personality. Obviously, in, in my opinion, his biological son, but he doesn't retain the same Taiwanesque ruthlessness that that his that his father had, and he's, you know, he he tries, he really really tries to be Tywin Lannister at the end of this chapter he does. with his whole, I will send the Riverlanders up front, then the phrase will follow, and then finally my Westermen, then, and then when after the everyone is killed, I will and this will take place, I will take down River on River on stone by stone, and I will redirect a river to run over the uh, the castle itself, Ugh, so no one, God, so no one will brutal. ever. Right. No one will ever remember that River Run, River Run even even existed. And then after all of that is done, your wife will give birth and I will hurl that child over the ruins of River Run with a catapult. And you're like, damn, son, man, you're like, you're trying. You, again, Jamie's a huge tryhard. He's a tryhard to be Tywin Lannister. He's a tryhard to be as noble of a knight as Brendan Tully back in his youth. But can he actually do it? That's a question that's kind of dominated some fan discussion, whether he would be willing are able to to murder a child in cold blood. And I I don't know. I, I think maybe. I don't know which one he wants to be the most. Right. That's always I mean, I is he is know. he the noble knight that keeps his oaths now? Is he golden hands the just as he imagines himself to be as he's riding up to River Run? Or is he the guy that's still willing to push children off of out of a tower like Bran Stark at the at the beginning of a Game of Thrones? Or is he the guy that's you know willing to throw a child with a trebuchet to to prove a point that he is as ruthless and as cruel and as cunning as Tywin Lannister is? It's it's still up for debate, in my opinion. I agree. <laughs> that's all I have to say. <laughs> <laughs> this was uh, yeah. This is a good Jamie chapter. After a lot of soul searching to actually be face to face with someone that's going to call him on things and make him get so disgruntled that he starts to make decisions that he wouldn't have made in the safety yeah. of the chapters before it. Yeah. You know, his, his father made his life not easy necessarily, but his father made those incredibly ruthless decisions and took the decision-making out of Jamie's hands in, in such a way that, you know, Jamie's kind of lived on easy street for most of his life. And now he's in the position where he has to make hard choices or make these thunderous orations about killing children in order to prove points. Um, but you know, kind of on a on a on a lighter, happier note, did you guys um mm. <laughs> did you guys catch the uh, the singer at the end of the chapter? Oh yes. yeah, who's that singer? You wonder. Yeah, I was going to ask you who's that singer. We don't <laughs> know uh, who that singer is yet, but we know soon. Like, do we know yet, or am I just remembering? So, in, in Jamie's next chapter, he does introduce himself okay. here, but he's he's left ambiguous in this chapter. And uh, Jamie eight, he he introduces himself as Thomas Sevens, mm -hmm. and who do we know Thomas Sevens from? Well, we know him from Arya's Storm chapters, where he is a sworn and tried member of the Brotherhood Without Banners. And 
curious how that guy's in Jamie's camp, huh? That's kind of <laughs> weird, right? The brother of uh, Banners. Tom's you know, a slippery guy, you know? He is. Yeah. To be the guy who, do, who is tasked to play the song, though, that's just so perfect. Because he already has that song. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. The floppy fish. About Edmure. Yeah. The floppy fish. Yeah. Um, but, you know, what's interesting, though, right, is that uh, – oh, what's that? I'm trying to find it. Where where he says, you know, play him, play him the reins of Castamir, and and they're just like, no, not this guy, get him away from me. Why it's just a song, said Jamie. He cannot have that bad of a voice. Well, what's kind of interesting about this is that it seemingly Jamie leaves Thomas Evans alone with Edmure. Like he walks out of the tent afterwards. Seemingly, I, I think we pick that up in the next chapter, and that he had left Edmure alone with the singer for a little bit of time. But I wonder what the singer told him. I wonder what the Brotherhood Without Banners is planning here with uh, with Lord Edmure and with Brenda Tully, perhaps. So this could go as far as we imagine it, I assume. Yeah. So, I mean, like in the in the next chapter, the next Jamie chapter, we find out that Brenda Tully has escaped River Run, right. that he, they let the gate up a little bit so he can swim out from mm-hmm. under. Seems like that was part of the plan. So the, the idea was to get Edmure into River Run to negotiate the surrender of the castle itself. I don't know that he necessarily would do that. Does does Brendan Tully seem like the guy who's willing to just give up the castle for for no good reason besides the fact that Lord Edmure is back in the castle? Definitely I don't not. Think so definitely not. Especially so now with some time machine, like having with, read the next stuff and seeing what's happened, right? Mm, yeah. And Brendan Tully is still missing. You know, in, in Jamie's dance chapter, he's they they're trying to find him and he's he's not turned up yet. You have to wonder whether the Brotherhood of Banners picked Brendan Tully up at some point down the river and whether there's future plans in store for Brendan Tully when the Brotherhood of Banners. And, you know, I'd be fascinated too by, um, yeah, I, I would have loved to have seen what Brendan Tully's reaction would have been to Stoneheart. Cause I think that would have just been heartbreaking for him to see his niece in the state that she's in right now. And in, in the, in the, uh, in the character of, of Lady Stoneheart. Mm-hmm. I meant to ask you guys about that before. So that's, do you think that that's how it was met for him? He, he didn't sort of, match it with his own cold fury at the situation and and sort of begrudgingly accept it for what it is you think it was a pretty tough thing for him to go through and he doesn't like it or is operating beside it and just being okay with it what do you think brendan tully like leaving river is that what you're talking about or you're talking about jamie with brendan with lady stoneheart how do you think it affected him yeah i it would have been heartbreaking. I think, I mean, that's, that's the thing about Stoneheart as, as a character is that she's, she's different from Catelyn, but she still retains that core piece of that identity. I mean, when we encounter her in the next Brienne chapter, she has the, uh, the crown, which we, we haven't covered in this chapter, but that crown that is, um, uh, that Ryman Frey's uh, prostitute that he's, that he has, mm-hmm. uh, that she's the wearing the crown. That's, yeah. yeah, that's, that's Rob Stark's right. crown. And, um, Ryman Frey has it. They got it after the Red Wedding, which, of course, makes me angry at the phrase all over again. They stole Rob Stark's crown. And then they have him. Now the crown shows up afterwards because we find out Ryman Frey gets hanged in the next Jamie chapter. He's dead. And the Brotherhood of Banners has recovered the crown. And when we catch up with Lady Stoneheart and Brienne in the uh, the camp of the Brotherhood of Banners, Lady Stoneheart has the crown and she's holding it and she's staring at it. Like, it's, it's so tragic, right? You have this idea that... There's a core part of Catelyn's identity that still remains in, in in Stoneheart, even if it's not the same character. And she's still broken up about the death of her son, the murder of her son, the horrific murder of her son. And so taking that to, to Brendan Tully, I mean, you've, you can imagine this, a really heartbreaking meeting and encounter between the two, I think would be 
I don't think we'll see it necessarily on page, but I, you know, you can pretty easily imagine it off page for sure. It's got to be worse to have just enough of that recognition there for it to feel real instead of him being faced with somebody who he doesn't see anything of Catelyn in at all. But because it's the latter, like you said, that's enough recognition to just break his heart all over again. Yeah. And to see her Absolutely. carrying out such grisly behavior. Or yeah. now he can know that somebody else is trying to get revenge and he can just quietly swim away mm-hmm. into his own new life. Just keep swimming, Blackfish. Just keep swimming. <laughs> swim across the narrow sea and find Daenerys. Join Daenerys's party. It'll be like when Barristan joined, but even cooler. <laughs> I guess so. Come on. Yeah. No. I mean, you, you don't know. I mean, like you... I, I, you you hope that a character like Brennan Tully will end up being an endgame character, right? I mean, like the thing that's Definitely. overarching all of this, the stuff with Brienne and the, all the dead people that she's encountering in the Riverlands, there's these the last, basically the last battle in the War of the Five Kings, un- unless you're Stannis and you're still fighting the War of the Five Kings because you're the one true king and you're still fighting for your crown. <laughs> but uh, over, overarching all that is this, the White Walkers are coming, the others are coming, all of the people that die in the War of the Five Kings, there's the possibility that they could all be raised as whites, they could all fight against humanity, and that all of this Stark and Lannister and Tully and Tyrell and all of these different houses fighting and fighting and fighting and killing each other just creates potential soldiers for the apocalypse. And that's uh, that's something to always keep in mind when you're, when you're reading these chapters, as much as it's cool to, to read about battles, to read about the potential of Potential battles and read about the Brother Without Banners, hanging people left and right, bad people for the most part. There's these are still people that might serve in the army of the undead as, as oh, we God. come to the, the final <laughs> book in the series. Yeah. The father, I hope he he judges them uh justly. All of them. When the cold, cold dread sweeps across the lands of Westeros. Good lord. Yes. What do you think, Hannah? Do we uh go far enough? You think we've wrung enough blackfish out of blackfish? I think we've we've gone pretty deep down the rabbit hole, so yeah, I feel confident yeah. that we've had a sufficient conversation. I, I apologize for that. I, I know it was, it was a lot. No, that's I why could, we brought you on here. Are you kidding me? I could climb out of this tub and kill you where you stand, Kingslayer. Mm. <laughs> what Get are your owns for? Do you guys want to do this Jamie chapter or circle back to Brienne? I'm going circle, back to Brienne right yeah, now. Let's circle back let's to Brienne. 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 I gotta find mine real quick because I did have one. Mine isn't very deep. It is another uh, definition. I <laughs> was reading the book. <laughs> yeah, the definitions. <laughs> and uh, I looked into my glossary. It was an elephant word. And here's the sentence it was taken from. Oathkeeper punched through cloth and mail and leather and more cloth. I guess I read that too happily. So let me try it again. Oathkeeper punched through cloth and mail and leather and more cloth, deep into his bowels and out his back, rasping as it scraped along his spine. And I thought, how is that blade rasping? What is that? Because it sounds like it's kind of an out loud kind of thing. And I looked it up because I wanted to know how dark it could go. And to rasp, it means a braid, great, grind, Sand, file, scratch, scour. That might be the worst word for a blade on your spine. Good on you, George R. R. Martin. <laughs> Jeez. That's great. SAT words with Game of Owns. <laughs> Jeff, do you want to go? 
Sure. Um, I could very easily do the, the no chance and no choice, but I, that's one of my favorite lines in all of a song of ice and fire. Brienne establishing herself as the one true knight in Westeros. But I actually went back and uh, there's a great, I, I want to call it a, a little bit of an homage to Ned Stark, where, where Brienne is seeing all the dead people that she's, she's looking at. And she thinks these were evil men, Brienne reminded herself, yet the sight still made her sad. She forced herself to look at every man in turn, searching for familiar faces. A few she thought she recognized from Hall, but their conditions made it hard to be certain. Now, I, I, one of the things that distinguishes Ned Stark and, and the Northerners from any other culture or people group in Westeros is that the man who's, who passes the sentence should swing the sword. Now, while Brienne is not necessarily passing the sentence or swinging the, the sword, the other part of that line from the North the Northerners say is that that Ned Stark says is you must look upon the man's face before you take his life. And I think I'm not saying it's necessarily a direct callback to what Ned Stark is, but I do appreciate and admire Brienne for having the bravery and courage to look at the horror that's around her. She's not looking away. She's always in- engaging with her surroundings and engaging with the world around her. And it makes her such a fascinating and fabulous character in the story. And it, it, it speaks to her as, as a character that's not not necessarily beyond reproach, but is definitely among the most virtuous, the most honorable, and among the best in terms of morality characters in all of Song of Ice and Fire. So my own goes to Brienne for for being courageous and brave enough to look upon the faces of the slain and realize what's what's going on here. And that even though even though they're evil men, she gives them the respect of of looking at them and giving them a one last final honor as opposed to looking away from the from the horror that she's seeing around her. Beautiful. Shout out, Brian. Beautiful. Yeah. <laughs> um, I'm going to give my own to another word, which is when Brian <laughs> whispers sapphires. Yes, oh, that's so good. Because that <laughs> moment was just as she's kind of thinking, am I, this isn't quite as soon, but as she's kind of thinking in the back of her head, um, this men will always underestimate you. Their pride will make them want to vanquish you quickly. All this kind of like she's got all this going in the back of her mind as she's in the middle of this battle. And then she whispers sapphires before she <laughs> gets forged. And it's just so good. That's another great like TV-esque almost moment. Beautiful. Oh, yeah. So good. So own to sapphires. Sapphires. And sapphires. Jamie Six, a.k.a. Blackfish. Mine's going to come from from my namesake, of course, because I have to I have to give my shout for for Brendan Tully because we're we're not going to see him again. You owe him so much. Song of and Fire. So <laughs> yeah, I, I do owe him so much, <laughs> so so much. So it's from the the when they're Jamie and, and Brendan are talking, and Jamie says, "Why did you even come to treat with me then?" <laughs> and Brendan Tully says, "A siege is deadly dull." I wanted to see the stump of yours and hear whatever excuses you cared to offer up for your latest enormities. They were feebler than I'd hoped. You always disappoint, Kingslayer. <sighs> Savage. God, what is it? What do I feel like he's saying it to me? Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like my dad so talking true. to me all over yeah, again. Exactly. <laughs> I was going to get my own to the same exact thing, so now I have to find oh, something new. No, it's that good. In the meantime, while Hannah's looking, I want to ask: Are all Brendan's badasses discuss? Hmm. Hmm. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> rummaging through all the kids I knew in high school. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> I guess I'm just going to give my own, I guess I'm going to give my own to 
something we already talked about, which is when. <laughs> I'm, getting, I'm getting there. If you say it slow <laughs> enough, you can just connect it to your thought. <laughs> which, is just, <laughs> which is just when J- Jamie is talking to the not yet named singer and he says, play for our guest whilst he eats, you know, the song I trust. And he goes, the one about the rain. I know it. I just think, I just think that that whole exchange is pretty great. Yeah. Reading is fun. Reading is fun. It is fun. I like that. You read that and you're just like, Ooh, (laughs) I like that moment where Ellen Payne touches one finger to his nose. And Jamie's like, how many slashes you think it'll take to get through this guy's head? He's like, "Hmm?" (laughs) that was pretty cute. Ellen Payne. I'm starting to think differently about you after that moment. Just a little bit. Uh, and then also, was, was Jamie like points out, he's like, no, it's actually, th- I, I think it's three. Yeah, he's like measuring <laughs> the size. <laughs> like, are you, like, yeah, it's, it's three. You'd only uh, be also, able to do shout it. out quickly to Carl Vance, because I think he was speaking some reason in that war council. And to Strong Boar for his courage, even though it might be misplaced. Yes. I'm giving my own to Jamie for a thought he had during his conversation with Blackfish on the drawbridge. With everyone watching, by the way. Everyone's watching. Plus, it's not like he's just talking to anyone. We've already established it, but I feel like it needs to be said again. This is probably the idol or one of the idols he he would like to not do this with, mm-hmm. not mess up this poorly with. And midway through the conversation, he realizes and thinks to himself, this is not going well. <laughs> and I related. I know what that feels like to be in those situations where you're like, oh, crap. Uh-huh. And there's nothing he could do about it. And um, that was kind of a sad situation for him because we've, like I said earlier, we've been growing warmer to him leading up to this, but we haven't seen him really judged in a way that's as true as it could be because we've been seeing things through his perspective and he's been dealing with a lot of sycophants and people that work in causes that we don't even respect in the first place. So that's not a very good lens or, or sorry, a filter rather to compare him against things with. But when he's standing on a bridge with Blackfish, uh, all of those truths that we know about him and that he knows about himself become very, very evident. And it is quite a stage to see him squirm under those collective truths, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Good on. So good. Yeah. This good is not on. going well. <laughs> this <laughs> Probably is not should have going thought well. this through. Ugh, just kill me. He goes, <laughs> tell you what, uh, I'll break my vow and you can fight me like this and you can just kill me. How does that sound? Because I messed this up so bad. Just kill me. And he's like, no, I'm not even going to kill you. You got to go continue on with this farce. Enjoy. Mm-hmm. Well, now that we've read our owns and that my computer is about to die. We have some listener owns to read to you. Exactly. First up, we have Heathen King, shout out, who says, I have no chance. No chance and no choice but to give my own to Lady Brienne for knowing her duty to intercede on behalf of Willow, even though she knew the odds. It's her greatest moment. It's very clever. My other own goes to an inverse no chance, no choice moment. Jamie must win the siege at River Run without bloodshed, and in order to do so, must act like his father, threatening Edmure's child with a treachery. Whoa, trebuchet. <laughs> I almost went off the rails with that one. <laughs> to win, he must be the villain. Good owns. Hashtag deep. That's I feel like both of those sum up perfectly exactly what we've been trying to say for the last two hours. <laughs> so. Right, exactly. <laughs> That's why we read them at the end of the show. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, what do we listen for? Uh, Beauty Brienne on Twitter. 
My Brion goes to focus. <laughs> Hyle's focused on being a fuckboy and establishing his name. Will is focused on feeding the other kids while Bree's focused on her task, wondering if Willow might be Arya and more immediately not getting her face chewed off. Jamie's own goes to him holding his temper despite the Blackfish's antagonism and the phrase dot 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 frayness. Also, yes, he hasn't cleaned nearly enough clocks with his golden hand. <laughs> Whack. I need some more of those moments. Oh, this is this appropriate. The next stone is from Jose, who says, My own goes to the black in all caps, dragon, had servicing red with rust at the Quiet Isle many years later. This has to be a huge giveaway for the Blackfire Aegon subplot. Smiley face, thumbs up. I'm with you, brother. Smiley face, thumbs up here, too. Nothing like a third <laughs> we read to find these hidden gems. And it looks like a light, microscope, and a gem. Ah, I get uh, it. Yes. Yes. <laughs> yes. Good emojis. And a second oath I made to Rob Stark's bronze crown used so blithely by Ryman Frey and his camp follower. Soon it will be in the hands of Lady Stoneheart. I pity the one who will be found holding it. Scream face. <laughs> Good on, Jose. Next we have Jen Calhoun, who says, Own for Brienne and Jamie two to two interestingly contrasting lines. In Brienne, seven dot dot dot, no chance, no choice. She knows the odds are hopeless, but she fights to protect Willow. She shows throughout the chapter how loving, honorable, and brave she is. In Jamie, he thinks, would you throw your life away for pride? Brienne risks her life to protect. He tries to risk his because his ego is bruised. He's growing. Old Jamie would have shown no restraint, but it seems like he still needs to think, what would Brienne do? Hashtag WWBD. (laughs) (laughs) That is a good hashtag. We all need bracelets. Yes, we do. I want one that's, uh, never mind. Uh, This next tweet is from Atomics IGN. It's not an own, but it owns. He wrote, bloody hell, I didn't realize you guys were actually doing chapters again. (laughs) On to you. On to you. Rune VR on Twitter. Brienne owned to Sarah Heil Hunt, whose little quip finally made me like him just a little bit. Hashtag end of the crossbow. Yes. (laughs) Yeah, forget about that. Yeah, that's good. That is great. And uh, the Blackfish clearly owned Jamie with his utter disdain and no room for quarter. Hmm. Almost starting to hate the guy. Maybe I'll give this own to George. (laughs) It's a safe own. For the emails, we have Amy who writes, For Brienne 7, I have to give my own to Biter's horrible tongue. Hashtag (sighs) cheese breath. Hashtag don't chew with your mouth open. Hashtag manners. That's pretty good. And then for Jamie 6, my own goes to the Blackfish and literally everything he says to Jamie. Hashtag. (laughs) Hey, there you go. This is not going well. Hashtag burn. That's all. Well, you know, you read those pretty well. It's almost like you make a Song of Ice and Fire podcast or something. Almost. Yeah, I I almost do. How many episodes do you guys have now? We just finished recording our 31st episode on Tyrion 4 from A Game of Thrones. So, uh, yeah, I know, right? We're like 30, 31 chapters into, actually 32 chapters technically into A Game of Thrones. And, yeah, it's a it's a lot of fun to a do it with. Seasoned vet. Ah, not not yet. Not like you guys. I mean, you guys have been doing this now for what seven years, six Jeff, years. Jeff, you are I, my guiding light. Come on, you're my guiding light. <laughs> Come on, let's you're not, my shining star. Let's be real here. <laughs> <laughs> I couldn't have thought Where of a can... better person for you to make a podcast with than Emmett Booth, who is also oh my gosh. one of my shining stars. Like, how did you guys? When whenever it was like, I felt like a gift was getting sent down from the heavens when I learned that this was going to happen and that it wasn't a practical joke that you guys designed just to mess with me. 
Because I feel okay, like this podcast was made for me. I don't know. Oh, I appreciate that. Very yeah, selfishly. Emmett, aka Poor Quentin on on Twitter and Tumblr is a fantastic guy. You know, we we had met a, actually just last year for the first time. We had been interacting online for for a few years before that, and it's 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 a blast doing with him. And you know, he's the real brains behind the operation. Like he's he puts so much work and effort into into everything that we do, and. Uh, the amount of analysis that he sheds onto these chapters kind of blows my mind every single time. And I'm just happy to kind of be there once in a while, say a few stupid, stupid things once in a while as well. But, but yeah, it's, it's fantastic. And I think you guys would, now you know how we feel every time yeah, you're now, on the podcast. <laughs> now you know how we feel. <laughs> no, I'm just like, yeah, I'm just like every single time, like he's like, oh, and like, this is about the feudal structure. And here we're going, yeah. George is deconstructing this. And I'm like, yeah, that, that makes sense. Yeah, it's, yeah, that's You're great. Like, I like your brain, buddy. Let's be friends. Let's talk right, about exactly. this kind of stuff all the time. Right. Yeah, um, it's, where it's can a, people find you, and how can they listen to your podcast? Sure. Um, you can find me on Twitter as at Brenda B Fish, on Reddit as Brenda B Fish, and my website is Wars and Politics, Vice and WordPress.com, Although I'm not really writing a whole lot there these days. And, and the the podcast I'm a part of, as you guys have alluded to, is called Not a Cast, and you can find that at Not a Cast A S O I F dot Podbean dot com or other places like iTunes, Google Play, SoundCloud, all the places that you can listen to your podcasts. And guys, it's been a super freaking great pleasure to be oh, with yeah. you guys again. I've been looking forward to this. Uh, I think we talked about doing this like eight months ago. And now <laughs> we're finally here. <laughs> I think I t- texted you like two weeks ago. Can you, or a little bit over two weeks ago? Can you record two weeks from today? <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's it's, it's, it's cool, guys. Like 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 I said, but at the beginning of the, of the episode, I. You guys are an inspiration to me as well, and you guys do wonderful work. And, you know, we got to talk, you know, last fall. We actually got to meet everyone. Uh, I met you both down at D.C. for the – met Hannah for the second time, but but Zach, you for the first time. And that's a pleasant and happy memory that I think about. And hopefully we could do that again. And that'd be great. Have you guys at D.C. or in Baltimore. Yeah. Yeah, we need to yeah, do that again stranded, soon. Right. I'd love to do that again soon. Hannah's favorite restaurant just opened up a location like – like what, like two doors down from where you mm-hmm. live? So I already dragged Eliana there with me. So if anybody oh, else you? is interested in uh, <laughs> being dragged there, you have to you have to tell me what off off air what the restaurant is. But yeah, I, I'll, I'll definitely come down for that. Cool. <laughs> well, um, thanks to everyone for listening to us talk about all this stuff with each other, and for writing in your owns in this off season, and for continuing to listen to a Song of Ice and Fire Game of Thrones podcast, even though a lot of people that you know in your normal life aren't talking about it as well. And if you bring it up, they might be like, what do you mean? Is that still on? <laughs> we're here, and we're really happy that you're here with us. And um, I'm pretty sure that the next time we come back to the podcast, it's going to be another pair of chapters that feels like it's, oh, well, this is the setup for the most epic conversation we've been waiting for, <laughs> right? This is it. What are they? Is that my anyway. cue to read the chapters? Yeah, that was your cue to come in and tell me which chapters Next they were. Next up, we've got John 8 and Elaine 2. Ooh. So if you want to follow along with us, if you want to read next time's chapters, or if you want to catch up with our reading order so far, you can find that at afeastofdragons.com. And that's something that Jeff actually helped put helped us put together and played an integral role in that. So um, a Go check that out. Yeah, for sure. A lot of fun doing that a few years ago. But but yeah, those are two great chapters too. Elaine two is the longest chapter in all of Song of Ice and Fire. So gotta remember that when I sit down to read read a half hour before we record. Uh huh. Thanks everyone. We love you. Goodbye. We'll see you soon.
and stop.